Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From his undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. What does Trump believe? Might makes right. Strength is harshness to perceived foes. Loud and proud stoke the crowd. An on-demand demagogue who can sell his version of reality as only a reality show star can. The examples, us versus them. Immigrants, Muslims, media, black men, G-men, government, allies, enemies, all seen through the lens of advantage, avarice, animosity. In a single thought, President Trump is about walls. Separation on all levels as a solution. Make America great again is inherently a suggestion to go back, not forward. Today, Obama reminded of the other choice. Bridges, not walls. Seek common ground, not common enemies. Diversity is a strength, not a source of suspicion. Progress, not regress. So which is right? You tell me. Both can get parts of the country riled up and make a popular president. I'll argue numbers. Trump can't get to 50% his way. Despite an historic economy and a list of achievements a mile long by his own reckoning, rallies with the thousands. His problem? Thousands ain't millions. He cannot get the majority of you to be with him. Not in the election and not now. Obama was at 60% on the way out. His highest was over 70. His lowest around where Trump is at his best in the main. Why? I argue a bigger notion than numbers. Nature. America at her best, by her nature, leads with her heart, not her hate. First of all, it says something about the identity crisis in the Democratic Party right now that Barack, there was such a demand for Barack Obama to be out there. And he you know, remains by far the most visible uh, a Democrat in the country. But he... That's no surprise. It's the well, most recent president. president. But, but, but there's, not, there's, nobody, there's nobody even, even close. Uh, but, but he had a, not just a mixed record, but a bad record of campaigning in midterm elections. Democrats, of course, got killed in 2010, got killed in 2014. The Democratic Party, not just in Congress, but in the states, was decimated during his presidency. So the question is, how effective will he be out there this time? He may be more effective now that there's the contrast with Trump. Uh, but but, but not, the track record is not, not on the great. ballot. I mean, midterm elections are largely reflections of who is sitting in the White House. He is not on the ballot, and he's constructing an argument about which direction you want this country to go in. And he has the benefit of the last 18 months to point to, say, this is not America. This is not what we should be about. Go ahead, I just want to say about the failures in in previous midterms. I mean, that was less about kind of his his own um, failures as a campaigner or the fact that his own speeches maybe weren't up to par as it was a huge failure of party building, a sense that kind of Obama had this so people didn't need to mobilize. And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. It's the 18th of September, year of our Lord, 2018. And I'm back. Fantastic vacation. Beautiful six days down on the Gulf of Mexico. Weather could not be any better. There were no kids. It was just me and my baby on Fort Pickens. Even got some great videos of the Blue Angels. Um, Didn't go to my usual spot. I just went down to Pickens and got the flyovers. But 
Great trip, great trip. Uh, didn't even gain any weight, so as usual, I hit the Gulf, the Gulf Coast. I eat straight fish, and um, I was pretty happy. Then I came back, had a good fishing trip with my wife, and here we are, back at the desk, and not a lot has changed, except for our script for today. We were going to do the liberal tea party concept, which is in full effect, um, but we're going to bump that to next podcast. Because there was some Google that came out, big time Google, about the 2016 election. And a post-2016 election Google meeting that pretty much sums up what I've been bitching about on this show for almost two years. About their liberal bias. And we're going to play that. It's about 35 minutes, so it's going to be a big chunk in the center. So if I skim over some subjects, there's a reason. I don't want the podcast to be too big. I want to get in a little hypocrisy, a little tweets of the day, and do our usual fun stuff on the news and social media nuggets. But I got to play that. You must hear it, because there's even questions from the audience. And, you know, a lot of people won't hear it because it's on Breibart. They got a hold of it. It is verified. It's a video. You can see them. So there's no way that you can project Veritas this. And as usual, our media ignored it completely. So we're going to start in with a quick Kavanaugh segment because a lot of drama about that. A little bit of hate. And then we'll go into Fire for Effect. And how could I start this segment without the media and Kavanaugh? Six years ago, I was diagnosed with a rare, inoperable form of bone cancer called chondrosarcoma cancer I still have to this day. But if the ACA and Planned Parenthood didn't exist, I wouldn't be alive. Told my cancer cost me my hair, my immune system, one knee, half my bank account, half my 30s, and one fun kidney. I may never be cancer free. My doctors told me my cancer and chemo radiation rendered me sterile. They assured me I could never, would never get pregnant. They were wrong. For so many people, getting pregnant is a dream come true. For me, it was my worst case scenario. If I took my cancer medication, the fetus life wouldn't survive. And if I stopped taking my cancer medication, I wouldn't survive. I knew the only day alive was to have an abortion. It wasn't a decision I took lightly, but it was the right choice for me, the only choice for me. If Kavanaugh were on the Supreme Court when I got pregnant, what choice would I have had? If his past record is any indication, I'd have no choice at all. He actively worked to block an undocumented minor from access to an abortion. He ruled against access to birth control. And he's criticized the Supreme Court for upholding the ACA, which provides, among many other things, reproductive health care access to millions of women. If his confirmation hearing is any indication, he's dodging relevant questions about women's health care, conflating birth control with anti-abortion drugs, and refusing to directly answer whether or not he would seek to overturn Roe v. Wade. And for those thinking that it would simply go back to the states, at least 22 states are at high risk should Roe v. Wade be overturned. And if you lived in Louisiana, Mississippi, North Dakota, or South Dakota, the trigger laws would have abortion access immediately denied. Women of color are at even greater risk of being refused the care they need. But we don't need Kavanaugh to tell us if he'd seek to criminalize abortion. Trump promised to elect pro-life judges, and Kavanaugh is the proof. Proof that women could denied access to birth control and Plan B. Proof that pharmacists could have the right to refuse medications based on religious beliefs. Right now, I am alive because Planned Parenthood saved me. The ACA and my privilege protected me. But it shouldn't be a matter of timing or privilege to obtain safe legal abortions any more than it should be a matter of timing or privilege that I am still living with cancer. 
No woman should have to justify her choice with PET scans or looming cancer threats. No woman should be asked why by any doctor and pray her doctors or pharmacists approve of their answers. And no person can afford to sit back and watch Kavanaugh strip us of our access to health or reduce women to bodies he can control. I am more than my pre-existing conditions, more than the tumor in my spine, more than what my uterus can or can do. Brett Kavanaugh disagrees. Brett Kavanaugh is all of our worst case scenario, and it's up to us to prevent it. Uh, on Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, Chuck, over the weekend we learned that a top Democrat, Senator Dick mm -hmm. Durbin, is now calling for the delay of this expected confirmation vote for Kavanaugh. As you know, this week these allegations of sexual misconduct dating back to high school have surfaced. The judge denies it, as does the friend who is said to have been yeah. with him. How do you see this playing out, if you see it playing out at all? Look, I think this is... This is a, un, to say uncharted territory is a cliche these days in Washington, but this was a, this was, the whole way this was handled is odd. I'll be honest, the fact that this has somehow made it into the public uh, discourse in and of itself, I think is something that we all have to ask ourselves, how did this happen? You can't unring a bell like this. Right. And you don't, we don't know a lot about this allegation beyond the fact that it's in a constituent letter and all this stuff. So. Look, I think there's a lot of questions to be asked inside that Judiciary Committee on how this was handled. It still, it's still just totally disgusts me that the media is so on board with this. But basically what happened is they waited to the 11th hour to try to stall this because they want to get to November. They don't want this to go through. And out comes Dianne Feinstein with some bullshit from some lady about something he did in high school. M.G. Lee, new details from Adrian DeVoe. According to a woman, Kavanaugh attempted to remove her clothes at one point. Kavanaugh was on top of her laughing, and another male in the room apparently jumped onto Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh held his hand over her mouth at one point. Diane Feinstein literally looks so horrible. She forwarded to the FBI late. Won't give any information out. <clears throat> and all I'm going to say is this is some 17-year-old kid stuff. That's the best they can come out. FBI is not planning an investigation. Ronan Farrow, woman alleged two Democrats that during high school, Brent Kavanaugh held her down, blah, 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 blah. The media went crazy. Kimberly Strassel sums it up, and then the money shots on the back end. On Feinstein's referral letter with accusations against Kavanaugh, the FBI, this is imply enough to be sent to the FBI, but not important enough to have been raised before now. Can't be both. New York Times reporters, she got the letter this summer. Similarly, this is important enough to be sent to FBI, but never shared with a single Republican. Feinstein's statement explicitly acknowledged that the accuser did not want to take this further. So why is this with the FBI? Timing here cannot be ignored. Coming only after Democrats cats were unable further stall a vote and just to be clear deeds and media are now using a secret letter with a secret accusation from a secret person to try to take down kavanaugh senate judiciary got together 65 women women wrote a bipartisan backgrounds wrote for the entire time we knew him he was a good dude of course the media and the democrats ignored it like it was nothing it, you know G think progress GOP responds to assault allegations against Kavanaugh by pointing out there are women he didn't rape. That comes from Think Progress. He didn't rape. He didn't rape that girl. Kurt Schildster. I checked the Montgomery County docket. Brett Kavanaugh's mother was a judge on a house foreclosure case that appears to be the accuser's parents. I don't buy it. 
And finally, somebody in the media tells the truth about this, which is the same truth about the previous women that came out about Trump. They're damn activists. You know, according to the Washington Post, she's a Democrat. Um, a lot of people look at this and say, here's somebody who has a political motive to tell this story. What would you say to that? I'm struck by um, Grassley's comments. You know, he's basically saying that this was politically motivated. And I can certainly understand that as a theory. Look at the timing of it. Absolutely. And she's a big Democratic donor. Right. But you also, yeah, but you also have to consider the fact that something that is politically motivated can also be true. In this case, it's dicier because she is a Democrat donor, his accuser, Christine Blasey Ford. Her lawyer, Deborah Katz, is a very uh, well-known Democratic activist who, by the way, her lawyer was very defensive of Bill Clinton when he got accused of Paula Jones um, and said that one allegation of Bill Clinton allegedly taking out his private parts in front of Paula Jones wasn't enough for sexual harassment. But now wants to, you know, this Supreme Court nomination not to go forward because of this allegation. What would be the possible reason to make something up starting in 2012? Right, exactly. Well, I I mean, it could have been his assent to, you know, the federal bunch. If you're going to argue it on his side, right, you could say he was ascending in the halls of power. He he was getting on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, She's sitting there. Maybe she had a negative experience with him. Maybe he blew her off. This is what defenders would say, right? She's been harbored. She's had an axe to grind about him, and she lays the foundation as a Democrat donor saying, I don't want this is. This I'm just going with the with the most dramatic theory in, in defense of him. It's been 34 years. He was allegedly 17 when it happened. How is he supposed to defend himself? There's a reason we have statutes of limitation in this country, and that's because, this isn't a criminal case, but that's because memory fades, details fade, and it's impossible for him to disprove a negative, or to, to prove a negative. I didn't do it. You know, I, I'm, I'm 50 years old, and I can't remember a time that a Republican has ever nominated a Supreme Court justice without the Democrats acting like petulant schoolchildren. I can never remember a time a Democrat hasn't nominated a Supreme Court justice and the media said they are so un- they're non-partisan, they're so perfect, yet their backgrounds are way worse than Kavanaugh's. Way worse. So, more to follow on that. It, it looks like they're going to get what they want. They're going to stall a little more. Um, people like Flake, who's really a Democrat now, might fuck this up, and Kavanaugh might not get nominated um, over some 17-year-old shit that nobody can verify, that he totally, unequivocally says he didn't do. And every other woman who's ever worked with him says he was a great guy. So if we're going to not let people have jobs because what they did when they were 16, well, sweet Jesus, I had sex with a prostitute. I didn't even know it was a prostitute. My friends bought the prostitute. I thought the girl really liked me until she miraculously slipped a rubber on me, and I don't know how she did it. That's when I started questioning what was going on. They told me the truth, and I took a freaking SOS scrub pad fucking shower and was freaked out. Does that mean I don't get a job ever? It's not like I paid for it. I didn't know she was a prostitute. I was a kid, which is my point. He was a kid. Maybe what he did was wrong. Maybe it's actually true. At this point, the way it was handled by Feinstein and the Democrats, I believe not one iota of it. 
Up front, I had to do this one. This is from Town Hall. Chelsea Clinton, as a deeply religious person, I believe it's unchristian to end Roe v. Wade. I'm not even going to read the article. I'm just going to leave it there. Other article, Woodward, in two years, I found no evidence of Trump-Russia collusion. None. Because there is none. Which brings us into our hate. Black Lives Matter vows to disrupt Cop Expo on six-month anniversary of Stephen Clark's death. They're going to raise it up. Got a big, huge thing. It's all over the liberal websites. Cop Expo. Shut it down. Treat them cops like shit. I was going to get a soundbite from the Emmys last night. Michael Che, another liberal fucking piece of shit from SNL, said some horrible shit. And one of them was like a cop going to a BET award show. Yeah. That was his joke. Thousands mourn the American Israeli who was stabbed in the back and pursued the terrorist before dying. He's an Israeli-American. He got killed by a Palestinian. Didn't make the news, because we don't care. We like Palestinians. Black man attacked by left for interning in the White House responds to critics. Of course, the so-called tolerant left wasted no time leveling racist and disgusting rhetoric out my way. After the White House intern photo was leaked to the media, one intern was attacked online by leftists. And an edited version of the photo was shared on Facebook page Funny or Die, which had more than 15 million likes, depicting Jalen Drummond as Chris from Get Out, a thriller movie about a black man who goes to meet his white girlfriend's family who then try to trap him. Drummond, who was also standing by the president in the photo, was attacked by various Facebooks. One called him a white white N-word, another called him a house N-word, another called him an Uncle Tom. Because he wanted to work in the White House. He was proud to be there. Huffington fucking Post, an actual news source to the media. For lacking diversity, they've they've said this is horrible, and then they get somebody who has diversity, and they dog them. Huh. Yeah, that's nice. Then we got our MS-13. 11 MS-13 gang members arrested in five brutal murders, two by machete, Texas cops say. Another one, green cardholder goes on mass shooting spree, murders five people. California allegedly went on a mass shooting spree on Wednesday, murdering five people before turning a gun on himself and being confronted by law enforcement. Kern County Sheriff Young Donnie Youngblood identified the suspect as a 54-year-old Hispanic male and stated that he used a 50-caliber handgun to murder his victims. 50-year-old guy, green card, probably votes. Yeah. And then the MS-13 killed people at a funeral. Tragedy striking not once but twice for a family in Long Island, New York. A mother, Evelyn Rodriguez, whose daughter was brutally murdered by MS-13 two years ago, killed Friday night after being struck by an SUV while preparing for a candlelight vigil at her daughter's memorial. Evelyn died two years ago to the day that her daughter's body was found. Evelyn being remembered as a fierce champion for her daughter, advocating tirelessly in the fight against gang violence, including with President Trump. She also highlighted her fight on this program. He's a kid's. Kids kidding. You know, kids. That shouldn't be tolerated at all. These individuals are ruthless. I just hope and pray one day that this stops. How many more kids need to die mm. in order to make a change? And-
This is a Fox News alert. Sad news tonight. A New York mother praised by President Trump at the State of the Union and at roundtables on gang violence was killed tonight at a memorial to her slain daughter. Two years ago today, Evelyn Rodriguez's daughter was found beaten and slashed. Her alleged killers, about a dozen suspected MS-13 gang members who are facing capital murder charges. Tonight, at a memorial for her daughter, Rodriguez was run down by the driver of an SUV after what's been described as a heated confrontation. President Trump tweeting tonight, my thoughts and prayers are with Evelyn Rodriguez this evening, along with her family and friends. The New York Post reports President Trump is among those mourning the loss of Evelyn Rodriguez, the grieving mother whose teenage daughter was killed by a member of the violent MS-13 gang, was struck and killed by a car in New York in a New York suburb Friday. She was on her way to a memorial service at the time, marking two years to the day that her daughter's body was found. Rodriguez received national attention when she attended President Trump's State of the Union address. She was described as a fierce advocate for ending gang violence. Evelyn Rodriguez fought to make her community safer. But on Friday, she was killed two years to the day after her daughter was murdered by MS-13 gang members. Evelyn was even killed in the same spot her daughter's body was found. Evelyn brought me to that location earlier this summer when we first met. This was the memorial on the side of a local street in honor of her daughter, Kayla Cuevas, and Kayla's best friend, Nisa Mickens. Investigators say Kayla and Nisa were brutally murdered with baseball bats and a machete in 2016. Yesterday, police say there was an argument between Evelyn and the driver of an SUV about the placement of her daughter's memorial. During the dispute, the driver tried to leave the scene. Vehicle struck and killed Evelyn right in front of that memorial. When I spoke with Evelyn while investigating the presence of MS-13 on Long Island, we talked about her determination to prevent other families from sharing her same grief. It was a mission President Trump honored, inviting Evelyn to his State of the Union address in January. And just this past May, she sat beside President Trump during a roundtable on gang violence. Last night, President Trump expressed his condolences. Attorney General Jeff Sessions calling the family of a mother who tragically died after her daughter was murdered by MS-13. Evelyn Rodriguez was won over by a car while visiting her daughter's memorial in New York on Friday, the second anniversary of her daughter's death. A nearby property owner reportedly grew frustrated, saying the memorial affected the value of her home and ran Rodriguez over. No charges have been filed. Nassau County Police Benevolent Association President James McDermott joined us earlier. He says Rodriguez's fight against MS-13 isn't over. She's an inspiration. She, she shows that you can get involved and, and that you should get involved and, and you shouldn't lay back and be a victim. It's horrible. Police are still investigating. She's a friend of the show. We've had her on so many times. My stomach just sank oh when you saw that. She's yes. been through so much. Right. A horrible... And these are the people the left love. They get upset when the president or conservatives call them fucking animals. You're an animal if you kill people with machetes. You're an animal if you kill people at a funeral. You're an animal if you shoot people with a fifty caliber desert eagle handgun. I'm just throwing it out there. Normal people don't do that. Linda Sassauer calls for people to stop humanizing Jews. Yeah. Look at that. 
Far-left Islamic activist Linda Sousser made strong anti-Semitic remarks during a speech this month at the annual Islamic Society of North America. The Algemeiner reported that Sousser shamed Muslims for not being more politically active and said that Muslims are not promoting the Palestinian cause, then they are part of the problem, saying you as an American Muslim are complicit in the occupation of Palestine and the murder of Palestinian processors. So when we start debating in Muslim community about Palestine, it tells me a lot about you and about the type of faith you have in your heart. If you're on the side of the oppressor, you're defending the oppressor, you're actually trying to humanize the oppressor, then that's a problem, sisters and brothers. And we got to be able to say, that is not the position of Muslim American community. Hate fucking Jews is our position. Thank God 99% of American Muslims don't think like Linda Sassar. Then there was this one, which goes in our hate, because I just fucking, this just sums up the left. Norm MacDonald told not to show up to Jimmy Fallon. Fallon said MacDonald made his senior producers cry. Yeah, really. That's the actual article header. <laughs> On Tuesday night, The Night Show with Jimmy Fallon announced that it would no longer host comedian Norm MacDonald out of sensitivity to our audience in light of Norm MacDonald's comment in the press today. What exactly did MacDonald said? He said that he was glad that the Me Too movement had slowed down a bit, he continued. It used to be 100 women can't be lying, and then it became one woman can't lie, and then it became I believe all women, and then you're like, what? Like that? Chris Harwick guy, I really thought, got a blunt end of the stick. From there, McDonald observed that the Me Too movement has created a perverse set of incentives by failing to allow people to apologize, come clean, and make restitution and return to their careers. They made it more likely that people wouldn't admit guilt at all, he then added. Well, Louis C.K. and Roseanne Barr are two people I know, and Roseanne was so broken up after her show reboot was canceled. Then I got Louis to call her, even though Roseanne was very hard on Louis before that. But she was just so broken and just crying constantly. There were very few people that have gone through what they have, losing everything in a day. Of course, people will go, what about the victim? But you know what? The victims didn't have to go through that. McDonald apologized. But Fallon wouldn't have him on. Now, remember, NBC is the same network that covered up Harvey Weinstein's sexual abuse allegations. But they won't have McDonald to clarify. Why not? Because reportedly, McDonald made members of the Late Show staff cry. Jimmy came back in, can I talk to you, buddy? And he said he was very, very broken butt about it. He didn't want this. He said, I don't know what to do. I said, you think I shouldn't do the show? People are crying. I said, people are crying? Yeah, he said. Senior producers are crying. I said, good Lord, bring them in and let them talk to me. I didn't even know I had the capacity to make people cry. So I felt so bad from the comment. Jimmy said, come back whenever you want, but I think it will hurt the show tonight. Jimmy, I don't want to hurt your show. That's the last thing I want to do is hurt you your show. But people are crying over a statement. What does that say about your staff, Jimmy Fallon? Maybe you should get people that aren't so sensitive to everything. But you're on a network that ignored this. Really bad segue. Nets ignore Wyoming Republican office being intentionally set on fire. Nobody covered it. They burned a fucking Republican office. It's okay, though. Leftists inundate Senator Collins' office with threatening voicemail, giant penis cutout. Keeping up with the unhinged tempo of the confirmation hearing for Supreme Court nominee Brent Kavanaugh, 
Democrats resorted to inundating the office of Senator Susan Collins, whose essential vote the Kavanaugh potential confirmation, with the threatening voicemails, vulgar props such as a three-foot penis-shaped cutout. Leftists and abortion enthusiasts against the confirmation of Kavanaugh have ramped up efforts to try to persuade Collins to oppose a qualified judge, including crowdfunding over a million dollars and threatening to give the money to the campaign of Collins' opponent. The Banger Daily News confirmed that Friday that anti-Kavanaugh caller spewed profanities and threats. When I have a caller tell the young staffer in my office who does casework that he, he hopes she is raped and impregnated, we have really reached a new Low. No, you haven't. Because then, the Washington Post reports, the Senate's office received a three-foot-long cardboard cut-up of a male genitalia accompanied by profanity. Orrin Hatch slammed the abhorrent behavior. The left's campaign to pressure Senator Collins has gone from threats of sexual violence against young staffers to actual sexual harassment. This is abhorrent behavior and, again, deserves to be roundly condemned. There is no low for the left. There's just no low. Mm -mm. Then there's this one. Amnesty International. An important organization at one time. America's lack of sufficient gun control constitutes a human rights crisis. Oh, really? Yeah. I think we have more crisis... With the left, personally, not with guns, because we're going to play Broadway stars hoping that Trump gets a John Wilkes Booth. Scarborough, Trump worse than 9-11. MSDNC guest, how's the GOP not threatening to blacks? And finally, Time Magazine guide saying, we need a time machine to go back and not take out Hitler, take out Trump. Damn him. Donald Trump has killed those people twice through neglect and oversight, and secondly, disgracing that they died at all. Um, and that's what death denial, that's what Holocaust denial, that's what all these denial syndromes are all about, is killing the person twice. Listen, even Paul Ryan, even Paul Ryan would admit this. But what we have here is a perfect example of the different ways in which the Republicans couch and add caveats and protect Donald Trump. Ryan, the first thing he said was, no one's responsible. It's no one's fault. Well, we don't know it's no one's fault. We would like to have some oversight hearings, as Corinne said. And the reason they're doing such a bang-up job, Caton, in North Carolina and South Carolina, is because those are Trump voters, just like they yep. were in Texas. If they're not voters and they're not white, he doesn't give a darn. And that's what this is also about. These people are not recognizable as Americans, as human what did you think about this story that uh, someone brought the Trump banner to the Frozen on Broadway? Did you see that? The Trump banner. I didn't see They did yeah. And one of the actors, uh, you know, kind of broke the fourth wall and said, hey, put the Trump banner away. This is Frozen oh, on Broadway. Now, is, is, is that a proper venue for, um, you know, a, a Trumper to, to bring a, a well, banner to? Well, my answer or? to that is, oh, this is good. Where was it? No, you should <laughs> Where is John Wilkes Booth when you need him? Oh. <laughs> right? I guess that's what you say. Now you're going to ask me who the hell John Wilkes No, I know who John Wilkes Booth <laughs> Thank is. Thank you, darling. He, he killed president. Okay. He killed Don't one say anyway. That. Well, they'll get me for that. They won't see. No. Where is he when you need him? He has to know. So we need to kill President Trump? 
What? He did. The, no. What? Why not? Should. Now, will that get me in trouble? I don't know. It might. Will I be on the, will <laughs> I be on the, will I be on an enemy's list? My God, I hope so. Yeah, you're okay with that. I'm okay. Well, yeah. That's all right. Go. Just keep me out of jail. Or maybe not. It looks at the gravity of the situation from 20,000 feet. It echoes some things my father was telling me before he passed away. Uh, you write in part this. Trump is harming the dream of America more than any foreign adversary ever could, in which he charts the course from Bush to Obama to Trump. This is your writing, Joe. This is describing your column. And a country that went from a huge surplus to racking up unparalleled deficits while squandering moral leadership. And here's the column. Sixteen years of strategic missteps have been followed by the maniacal moves of a man who has savaged America's vital alliances, provided comfort to hostile foreign powers, attacked our intelligence and military communities, and lent a sympathetic ear to neo-Nazis and white supremacists across the globe. For those of us still believing that Islamic extremists hate America because of the freedoms we guarantee to all people, the gravest threat Trump poses to our national security is the damage done daily to America's image. As the New York Times' Roger Cohen wrote the month after Trump's election, America is an idea. Strict freedom, human rights, democracy, and the rule of law from what the United States represents to the world and America itself is gutted. Osama bin Laden was killed by SEAL Team 6 before he accomplished that goal. Other tyrants who tried to do the same were consigned to the ash heap of history. The question for voters this fall is whether their country will move beyond this troubled chapter in history or whether they will continue supporting a politician who has done more damage, and listen to this, more damage to the dream of America than any foreign adversary ever could. Couldn't agree more, Joe. So, Willie, <clears throat> I love that line, that Roger Cohen line, America is an idea. And if you strip America of its ideas, uh, forget about knocking down buildings in the financial district, forget about running planes into the Pentagon. Those are tragedies, but those tragedies bring us closer together. America is an idea. You gut America of that idea. Mm -hmm. That's when you do the most harm to America. Roger Cohen wrote that right after Donald Trump was elected, and unfortunately, 18 months later, across the world, you have people looking at a country that is saying they want to ban people from coming to America because of their religion. You have just this week Brett Kavanaugh, who wants to be on the Supreme Court, refusing to answer whether people should be banned from coming to the United States because of their race uh, in his reading of the Constitution. And the accumulation of that, the retweeting of neo-Nazi videos, Charlottesville, uh, I mean, I could go on and on. What he said about uh, majority black countries, um, that is tearing more at the fabric of America than attacks on the Twin Towers did. We rebuilt from that. We became stronger because of that. Uh, but this is, seems to me a far graver, graver threat to the idea of America. Now, we saw what happened in Alabama with Doug, Doug Jones, and yeah. we saw the turnout. We know particularly black women specifically leading the charge. What are you specifically doing to get the 38 percent of black folk who make up the state of Mississippi to come out and support you? Great. Mrs. The South is changing. 
at least that's what we want. That's what we want to hold. Demographically, it's changing. Uh, there are all these assumptions about what we stand for, what Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida. Is Mississippi ready for someone like you? Now, 38% of Mississippi is black. Yes, sir. I'm from Moss Point. Um, you, if you were elected to the U.S. Senate, you're supposed to represent the whole state. Yes, sir. Your position around the Confederate flag, mm -hmm. your position on, around hip-hop as the source of gun violence, your position around Robert E. Lee, mm -hmm. I can go on and on and on. Please do. How do you convince black folk in this state that you're not a danger to them? I don't even know how to say it in a scientific or psychological way, but we're all, <laughs> I mean, at a very basic level, feel like people, you perceive something and then you perceive a reaction to it. And it feels like he is not even perceiving the basic things that other people see, perceive. And because he has so much denial, you know, uh, that he is not able to see the things that everybody else does, which is incredibly dangerous for the president of the United States and dangerous for all of us. It's There's insecurity. I mean, he is such a case there. I, people joke about a time machine. I'm no longer worried about going back to Germany in the 30s. I go back and tell Fred Trump to be a lot nicer to your kid. Because he's a little damaged, and we're dealing with it every day because we have this guy in the White House. I disagree a little bit. I have the same view about the damage of institutions. I think there's a little bit of hope. I think people are starting to cook in the fact that we have the crazy uncle temporarily in office. So yeah. I'm hoping that with their that job... You're buying that two-track People are starting I, I, I to kind of I absolutely hope that. you're right. Yeah. And if all that wasn't bad enough for you, as we go into fire effect, I have been saying for months in here, the whole purpose of Trump is to get rid of him. And then they're going to go after Pence, because Pence is more scary to them, because he's a Christian. He's one of those nasty people that believe in God. Treat women with respect. He's a horrible human being. And Maxine Waters, yeah, she helped me. She said exactly that. And then on the back side of our bumper, you're going to hear, once again, a compilation from the RNC. I rarely play a party videos unless they're really bad, like the Democrats, and I make fun of them. But this is a party video. It's called Crazy Town. And you're going to hear numerous Democrats calling for civil disobedience, attacking people, the whole nine yards. Where are you on that? Amnesty International, and a banana republic of people said what Maxine Waters and Booker and all them said, you would call that a violation of human rights. You fucking liberals.
We fought in the wars, came home on times, didn't have a house to live in, and didn't have a job. But we stayed with America. We fought for the democracy. We believed in the Constitution. All of those on the other side of the aisle who claim to be... of some Congress people. You see anybody from that cabinet in a restaurant, in a department store, at a gasoline station, you get out and you create a crowd. Those Republican leaders and President Trump don't give a... I, I, I just don't even know why there aren't uprisings all over the country. I love the word primer, because that's a great primer for the hurricane. It's more than politics. It, sure, they, they go back to Katrina, and they realize Katrina looked really bad for Bush. He flew over the stupid picture, and you got Kanye West saying he didn't care about black people. They really politicized it really well, and then they had a black candidate. It worked great for him. But it's hate. They fucking hate Anybody unlike them, so they use anything against them. But I want to say up front, millions of water bottles found rotting in Puerto Rico as San Juan mayor continues to bash Trump. They've been politicizing it. They blame Trump for it. And there's pictures. The left used it as a, look how inept the federal government was. Once again, local government. What did they do with them? It all came in. They didn't do anything with it. Sean Spicier the fake account, sums it up. Hey guys, just a reminder, don't forget to thank President Trump for turning down the intensity on Hurricane Florence right before landfall, because it's so true. I mean, they were ramping this up. New York Times, Hurricane Florence and the displacement of African Americans along the Carolina coast, because we want to get Katrina back. We need to make it race, right? The right wing M, Hurricane's a racist or something. He was joking. But no, thanks to NBC and CNN, hurricanes are racist because Republicans are the president. There's uh, an area of manufactured homes that we visited yesterday, for example, in a lower area where a lot of people had stayed behind. In fact, some families telling us they were scared to leave uh, because they're they're Latino and they were afraid of going to the shelters. Of course, the governor of North Carolina has said that no one will be, um, you know, penalized for going to a shelter. They're not going to they're not going to you know, ICE is not going to be active at this point. Um, but there were people staying in their homes out of fear. And this business about people without documentation uh, going to shelters we've heard over and over again that ice doesn't go to shelters but i gotta tell you after the last couple of years i can fully understand why people who are undocumented are scared about doing this sort of thing look his statement about puerto rico it's not true and more importantly this morning it's not helpful it's not helpful 
let alone to the families of the 3,000 people oh, who died hurtful. in Puerto Rico. It's, it's hurtful to them, but it's not helpful to the people in North and South Carolina who are about to get hit by a Category 3 or Category 4 storm. But isn't the story even darker than that? Isn't the story that these people who died, apparently thousands of them in Puerto Rico, 3,000 as you point out, they're not white people. And they don't count to Donald Trump as much as the deaths of white people. I mean, I, you hate to say that about someone, but look at his record. Isn't that indicative of who he is and what he stands for? I don't for? know. I don't know, Jeffrey. I don't know if I can draw that conclusion, but we certainly know that they didn't have the uh, apparatus in place when they knew that that hurricane was coming to Maria, and you have to ask why. You got to ask why. I mean, but, but, but in terms of acknowledging the failure, if 3,000 white people had died in Florida or Texas, would he be saying it was a success? He won't acknowledge the failure no matter what. I don't think it's in his DNA to acknowledge weakness or failure. You know, I have to laugh about that because we always hear the left and the media say how inept Republicans are. They're so inept. But they are so powerful, they control storms. So... Really, that's a. I would use that if I was a Republican. Listen, we're the party that controls hurricanes. That's who we are, so vote for me and I can control everything. Washington Post editorial Trump is complicit in Hurricane Florence impending destruction. Yeah. The Washington Post lead editorial argued that President Donald Trump is complicit in the destruction being caused by hurricanes, including the forecast pain set to be inflicted on Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina by Hurricane Florence. The reason that the Post outline had to do with the president's deregulatory agenda on the environment and his refusal to further President Obama's liberal environmentalist policy aims. The editorial first laid out the stakes for those in Florence's path and then by paragraph three laid blame at the feet of President Trump. Yet when it comes to extreme weather, Mr. Trump is complicit. He plays down human role, increasing the risk, and he continues to dismantle efforts to address those risks. It's hard to attribute any single weather event to climate change, but there's no responsible doubt that the humans are priming their system to produce disasters. Oh, really? Within it, they say we should change to all sorts of of new shit. They say in the future we should have category sixes. In a different article. A category six. But they break down all this and they pretty much try to blame it on Republicans. Diane Hugo, Emily Fran, Bonnie Floyd, Isabel Irene. Their narrative is basically it's Trump's fault. For all those hurricanes. In their Category 6, Florence said toward the Claire Lines Category 4, but media hype is making a bad situation even worse. Journalists are already pushing climate change and fantasizing about creating new categories. The Post seized on the opportunity on September 11th to promote new research on favorite climate alarmist talking points. The headline of the report, Chris Mooney's story, emphasized the possibility of Category 6. Six, which doesn't exist on the hurricane measurement scale. He wrote that some scientists have been talking about it for admitting an author of a study he was reported on didn't necessarily support adding a Category 6 to scale. Research using new computer modeling shows a warming climate would mean faster and more, more ramped up ones. The New York Times, ProPublica, Newsweek all urged other media to start talking about climate change. It's so important. We have to push it. And the media did it for him. 
President Trump says FEMA is ready for Hurricane Florence, but mounting evidence suggests it could be incredibly difficult to deal with this disaster if climate change deniers are on the front lines of emergency response. Previous research showing climate change as the cause of warmer ocean conditions that produce fast intensifying storms. But where does the Trump administration stand on climate change? Well, just yesterday, President Trump rolled back Obama-era mandates. These rules were all part of Obama's three-part strategy for combating climate change. I look forward, of, co of course, to all the hate tweets. It's going to be great about how a guy who took a lot of physics can't possibly read a graph. I got all that. But everybody, this is not in anybody's best interest to continue to deny climate change. Donald Trump and other Republicans who are denying climate change are on the wrong side of public safety, of economics, and of history. Unfortunately, we're going to see more and more of these extreme, costly, uh, and, and threatening to public health and safety events until we begin to reduce our emissions. Yeah, it does make you wonder, how can you adequately prepare for storms, for extreme weather, for fires, for hurricanes, for tornadoes, for flooding, for wild swings in temperature, which we've seen here in New York City in just the past week, if you have a bunch of people who don't believe in climate science running things? So if it wasn't that, they then went the political line and... Yeah, this one sums it up. Well, we've had teams down there nonstop, Gabe Gutierrez and a lot of others. But the fact is, just as after Katrina, where there was terrible infrastructure in parts of New Orleans, uh, that is a federal responsibility. These are American citizens. Uh, no, what you're actually wrong on that. It's not a federal responsibility to up, uh, upkeep the infrastructure. Actually, most of the infrastructure in this company is owned by the private sector. FEMA doesn't control uh, the maintenance of the infrastructure. And if you remember, uh, when I went back for the third supplemental after Congress, I had to ask for special authorities that's never been done before to fix the deferred maintenance uh, or the, the infrastructure well, that was allowed to rot. But, so, but the emergency so rescue is the it. federal responsibility, is the point I'm trying to Make. The president, uh, I want to go to Puerto Rico, says the administration does not get enough credit for their response uh, to Hurricane Maria. Do you agree? I mean, it was a very complicated situation and it is an island, but 3,000 people died. I covered the Iraq war. Baghdad was put together, back together faster than Puerto Rico. And, uh, and they don't even like us. But then help me understand the president's strategy here. It's, just, right? it's 3, called 000. lying. He didn't show any sense of empathy. And that's because in some significant way, Donald Trump is a deeply morally flawed human being. I've called him indecent. It has something to do with the fact that he is such a narcissist that in that moment he can't think of anyone else. He doesn't view them as our, our, our family. He views them as our neighbors. Right. He views them as our neighbors. And let's be honest, these are islands populated by people of color. I think you're elevating Trump to evil, uh, whereas uh, having raised three kids, I just think he's a giant toddler. Uh, with no real connection to reality and no sense of empathy or responsibility. Um, I don't think he even rises to the level of evil. That's really generous. <laughs> I think toddlers that I know are empathetic. Hey, he must have <laughs> better yeah, toddlers. He must have better toddlers. Some of them are toddlers than I do. They show the capacity to be yeah. empathetic. And I don't think this is, what I, I, don't, I, I don't see this in Donald Trump. But This is something that Cecilia and George touched upon. And it was the statements that President Trump made yesterday and also tweeting today talking about the um, efforts after Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, calling it an incredible unsung success. Do you agree with that? 
Look, you know, the, the effort into Puerto Rico um, was a huge effort by the federal government. The problem is, is that FEMA was the only responder going in, and we were, we were the first responder, and that's not the way that disaster response and recovery works. What you're seeing set up now for Florence is that you have state strong, you have strong state government capabilities, you have strong local capabilities, and that emergency response and recovery is a team sport. It's a whole community effort. It, it takes everybody from neighbor helping neighbor to the federal government. Going into Puerto Rico, we were the first responder and only responder, as I said, and that's not ideal. So what are we doing to correct that? You know, we have, we've hired over 1,800 uh, local Puerto Rican citizens to start building a backbone of emergency management at the Commonwealth and local level that did not exist before the storm. And so the other thing is, is that we need to shift the narrative about Puerto Rico to what are we going to do with the $50 billion that FEMA is going to provide Puerto Rico over the next couple of years and billions more from other federal government agencies? Puerto Rico has never had a better opportunity than now to become more resilient uh, and economically viable. And the question is, is that, you know, how do we go back in, build a resilient infrastructure? And that's what we're concentrating on. We're working with the governor day in and day out to build a resilient infrastructure. The question is, what are the provisions that will be put into place that, that doesn't allow Puerto Rico to let their infrastructure crumble? We faced a crumbling infrastructure. It was rotted and decayed. And uh, FEMA can't help that. We have to deal with the, the, the deck of cards that we've been dealt. All right. Thank you so much, Brock Long. And, and hopefully there are lessons that were learned. President Trump in the Oval Office late today said the federal government is, quote, absolutely and totally prepared to respond to Florence. But he also praised his own much-criticized response last year to Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, despite the official death toll recently being raised to nearly 3,000 people. That's almost as many lives lost in the September 11th attacks. Our Kristen Welker joins us live from the White House. Kristen, what's the latest? Lester, good evening. Tonight, President Trump is insisting his administration is as ready as anyone has ever been to deal with Hurricane Florence. The president describing the storm as tremendously big and wet. And when asked about lessons learned from those storms that devastated Puerto Rico last year. The job that FEMA and law enforcement and everybody did working along with the governor in Puerto Rico, I think, was tremendous. I think that Puerto Rico was an incredible, unsung success. One top Democrat calling those comments offensive, given that nearly 3,000 people died as a result of Hurricane Maria. Mr. Trump started his day in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, commemorating the 17th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, greeting supporters at the airport by pumping his fists. The president has canceled two campaign rallies to monitor the storm this week. He views, his, views it as an opportunity to hand out money and goodies for which people should be grateful to him. And he doesn't understand the devastation and the fears. And honestly, if he thinks Puerto Rico is a success, I'm a little nervous. That makes me more nervous about Florence coming in. I was really struck. I mean, Angela touched on this a little bit, but the inaccuracy obviously is very jarring, but also his tone. I mean, he came across as almost gleeful and excited about the hurricane and how big it was and how tremendously wet it's going to be and all these absurd things that came out of his mouth. Uh, you know, I worked in a White House for eight years. Many people have. In these moments is when the president should be calm. He should be sober. Mm -hmm. He should be conveying to people to be calm, to follow instructions. It's really a public service moment. It's not about tatting your own accomplishments and certainly not about taking the tone. He Let me and, you know, it is you, you just saw his tone there, but it is he talks as if this is an accomplishment for him. Like I created this big, crazy hurricane. Of course, he that's did, not his though. intention. Not this well, one, but we could talk about climate change, too. But 
But that tone is concerning. He, he may know he's changing the conversation, but ultimately he likes the role of being in charge, but he's not doing a service to the people in these places that will be impacted. Yeah, that's a FEMA head getting slammed by DNC, oh, MS type, CBS, ABC. I don't remember that under Sandy. Just don't remember it. Jan Gobble, person tweeted to MSDNC staff, did you all see this guy flash white power on TV? Our own Coast Guard. This needs to be investigated. This man needs to be ousted, removed, and discharged. That's how much of a fervor the left was. Another okay sign. The Coast Guard played it off and said, oh, we removed the person. We're sorry for the disgusting blah, 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 blah. The guy did okay. 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 Yeah, that's all he did. Okay. They were in a fervor. But there was some fun stuff in it. Take it breezy. Hurricane Florence weatherman caught fake battling to stay on his feet as two men are spotted casually walking behind him. Brian Seltzer rushed to his defense. This looks bad, obviously, but FWIW and Mike Sedell's defense, the channel noted that the two individuals in the background are walking on concrete while he's on wet grass, and he was undoubtedly exhausted from constant live shots. Carl Gustav tweeted back to him, Oh my God, I mean, how are you always wrong on the, on the wrong side of everything? How? Because he's Brian Seltzer. That's how. So... We're going to finish this up, go into hate tweets, and um, I'm going to play two guys mocking it. They made fake video. Let's just do that and talk about it. Then we'll finish up on the hurricane with just something that just angered me, something terrible. So here are two young men making great tweets, mocking it. Now, understand you can't see it in the video, but there are people firing, putting a fire hose on them, throwing cans at them. It is the funniest shit I've seen in a while. That's some good work right there. That's some funny shit. But the capper for me was Representative Gutierrez. Now, for people that don't know him, he's an uber Latina activist. He's a racist, hates white people. And he was actually on TV in an interview, and he uttered the phrase that basically said that the U.S. military was AWOL during Puerto Rico and did nothing for him. So understand, this is the perfect capstone to end the hurricane and go into hate tweets. They were so politicized, they attacked the U.S. military to try to glean anything they can get out of every fucking... Don't let a crisis go to waste, Democrats, for the midterm. We got to blame carnage, the military. We got to blame everything. And it's Trump's fault, just like Bush. He steered this hurricane onshore to kill black people. Because we don't have policies to get elected on. We have to... Fearmonger people, and this soundbite—you can go suck. A, you could eat a bag of dicks, Representative Gutierrez. A whole bag of dicks. Entonces, murieron tres mil personas en Puerto Rico o no murieron, según dijo el presidente. Por ello estuve a los diez días uh, del huracán. El tráfico a mediodía congelada, o sea, 
Si tú estabas enfermo, tú no podías llegar al hospital. ¿Ah? Pero Los es culpa del presidente Trump. Este es el país más poderoso, más sofisticado, con mayores recursos que ningún otro sitio. ¿Tú viste el ejército de los Estados Unidos? El ejército más poderoso, más sofisticado, nunca entró. ¿Tú viste los recursos? Estamos a un año. Hey, tweet of the day! Sorry about that. I, I shouldn't use the bag of dicks, but every once in a while, you, you just gotta pull... Never mind. I was gonna make a joke on top of it. Everyone's all going to pull out a bag of dicks. Why? Why would you do Anyway, let's move on. Alex Griswold, CNN, is reading an, off an op-ed from conservative columnists of the Washington Post. Guess who? And I think it sums up great by his second tweet. Only just now occurring to me that conservatives are enamored of a fake liberal, and liberals are enamored of fake conservatives, and they're both named Ruben. And that sums it up. CNN, seriously. Even conservatives like Jennifer Rubin say this. She hasn't been a conservative since Trump got elected. Steve Schmidt's not a conservative. Joe Scarborough's not a conservative. None of them are conservatives. They're not conservatives. They've turned liberal. Their contracts require them to so they can keep their jobs. Then Jamie Lee Curtis. I gotta admit, in my puberty or youth or whatever the fuck, when Trading Places came out and Jamie Lee Curtis... Curtis's boobies were shown. I think I grew like some pubic hair. I like carbonated my testosterone. It was one of the sexiest things I ever seen. I was young. And I've loved all her movies. I even watched Freaky Friday with that crackhead, Lindsay Lohan. But then she got caught saying this. I'm scared every day to live in America. Yeah, that's what she said. Well then fucking move. Move! Don't stay here. If it's so fucking bad, move. Then we go back to the Wayback Machine, and this one's just fucking hilarious. It was all over the net this week, so I put it down for hate tweets. And we have a minimized hate tweets and tweet of the day right now because, you know, long subject. Wolf Blitzer utterly humiliated on Jeopardy. I never even knew this. This is from 2009. Wolf Blitz, Blitzer is the smartest man in the world. He hosts roughly 22 hours per day of news coverage on CNN and knows the difference between Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and how to pronounce them. And I clearly don't. But exactly nine years ago today, September 17, 2009, Blitzer got blitzed on Jeopardy, losing the game and in the process his dignity. The talking head appeared on the celebrity edition of the quiz show with the actress Dana Delaney, one of my heartthrobs, and late-night sidekick Andy Richter. Both of them beat the pants off him. The show was usually humiliating for Blitzer, who ended up double jeopardy with negative 4,600. That's right, negative 4,600. But Alex Trebek, wonderful guy that he is, hit Blitzer up with 5,600, giving him a balance of 1,000 so he could hang around for final jeopardy. All the winnings eventually went to charity. The highest total Blitzer got to was 2,200 before he started his plunge. We're going to list a few of the questions, and I'm not going to read it, because they were just really, really bad. Which brings us to our tweet of the day, and it's going to be Jake Tapper. I heard this on vacation. There's two stories I heard on vacation. I was blacked out. I was listening to Turbo on XM, jamming old 90s and 2000 rock with my wife, or I was listening to Hurricane coverage, because... Um, the waves were horrible in Pensacola, and even though it was on the eastern side, you know, we were keeping track of the weather because there was another disturbance down on the coast that they, you know, didn't know when it was going to be in there. 
And th- this is the curtain debacle by the New York Times. Now, I know it should be an hypocrisy, but I want to give honor or to honor Jake Tapper. I mean, goddamn, it's rare that a CNN anybody, staffer, boom mic holder, the fucking people that lay out the donuts aren't super fucking libtards. This article was fucking horrible. We'll cover a little bit in hypocrisy, but the New York Times clearly knew what they were doing when they put this out, and it's no different than the uh, migration bullshit with the illegal immigrants and kids in cages and all the bullshit. They know what they're doing. They know what time period it was, but they put it out because they want negative news for Trump, Republicans at all, so they can get Democrats back in power because they're part of the Democratic Party. The gray lady has always been part of the Democratic Party, and, and this was a great way to do it because, as we know, once the headline goes out, once this fake news on the left goes out, which is purposeful and made for negative coverage for Trump, nobody knows the correction. We proved it a billion times. There's 45 billion tweets of a bullshit story or a crappy headline like this. And then there's 100 tweets of the correction. So this tweet goes as follows. A word on the false meme bopping around about the Nikki Haley 52,701 curtains. New York Times story notes in six paragraph, a spokesman for Ms. Haley said plans to buy the curtains were made in 2016 during the Obama administration. Ms. Haley had no say in the purpose and the purchase. Elaborating a source at the U.S. mission to the U.N. tells CNN it was decided well before the election in 2016 that the U.S. ambassador's residence would move from the Waldorf to its new location. The new location was unfurnished and unfinished. The sources continues, in June of 2016, it was decided the State Department Bureau of Overseas Building Operations would outfit the new residence. This is standard operating procedure for ambassadors' residents across the globe. In July 2016, the first site visit was complete, and the designer for OBO chose and ordered the curtain shortly thereafter, summer 2016. Also SOP, OBO does not personalize residence to individual ambassadors' taste. So this was done under Barack Obama and Samantha J. Power. This isn't about blaming Obama power, the source says. It's SOP for outfitting ambassador residence. The outfitting of the U.S.-U.N. residence just happened to start in 2016. Bottom line per source, Ambassador Haley had no choice in location of the residence or what curtains were picked out that summer. Folks, they knew what they were doing. All of these have very little retweets. The replies are from the resistance saying, it's still his fault. They could have stopped it. They spend $54,000 on curtains. And my last point before I play the really cute little tweet of the day, yay sound. If this happened to Samantha Powers, we would call it sexism. The New York Times is sexism. If Fox News ever ran a story about that, they're just sexist. But Nikki Haley has been drunk through the mud over and over by the media. And I ask you, where's the standard there? Every story about her has been fucking false. This was the hero who brought down the fucking rebel flag. You guys jerked off to this woman. You loved her. But now she works for Trump and you're bashing over curtains she had nothing to do with. 
and you heard the nice little line. This is not about bashing Obama and Powers. We would never do that. We love Obama. Hypocrisy! So with the administration saying uh, they are basically trying to save the country, this administration official, from the President of the United States, you've read the article in the New York Times, the senior Trump administration official, do you believe all of this is leading up to a constitutional crisis? Well, what about all the others uh, in the Bob Woodward book who seem to be backing up that same position? They're so worried about U.S. national security. They're so worried about this president. They're staying on, in their jobs to try to protect the country from the commander-in-chief. Are you concerned about uh, the president's fitness right now? Yes, the markets are, are up. Uh, the job numbers are good. The economy is moving along. But are you concerned at all, Congressman, about the president's fitness, some of the things he's done, some of the way he's behaved? Well, are you okay with the way, for example, he's treated the Attorney General of the United States, Jeff Sessions, humiliating him, berating him, going after him almost on a daily basis? Are you okay with the way, for example, he praises Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, the way he praises uh, uh, Vladimir Putin, the Russian leader, at the same time he's really going after some of America's closest allies, NATO allies, including Canada? Because the Republican leadership in the House has basically walked away as far as any serious oversight of the, uh, of the executive branch of the U.S. government is concerned, at least for now. The Senate, uh, they're still doing it, but in the House, it's been silent. That was Wolf Blitzer sounding like a resistance warrior. I, I just had to play it as a hypocrisy because it's perfect. Every one of those statements is a talking point of the resistance. And he's a major network anchor. On that network, we're still getting our panties wet over freaking Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She's called the notorious RBG for a reason. See why fans are inspired and thralled by Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's like a rap video picture. And I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you? They're not supposed to be politicized. Clearly, Kagan, Sotomayor, and RBG, as you call her, they're pretty political. Their statements are pretty fucking non... are pretty partisan. The next one on our hypocrisy is Kristen Gillibrand now says her call to abolish ICE were taken out of context. Oh, really? In an interview with the Post Star editorial board on Monday, Gillibrand insisted the media only focused 
on her calls to get rid of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency and on her statement about replacing with something else. As CNN reported in June, Gerlebrandt suggested separating the agency and renaming it. I don't think ICE today is working as intended. I believe that it should become a deportation force, and I think just you should separate the criminal justice from the immigration issues, Gerlebrandt said on Cuomo Primetime. She followed that up by saying, I think you should reimagine ICE under a new agency with a very different mission and take those two missions out. Gillibrand reiterated those comments on Aussie Fest when she said that Democrats retake Congress, they should get rid of ICE. Local law enforcement will not work with them. Yeah. I put it as hypocrisy. Could the Republican get away with that? Probably not. So back to the New York Times story. Here's some stuff that pretty much sums up how the media covered it. Oliver Dorsey, spokesman for the New York Times, tell me that editors are reviewing the Nikki Haley curtain story. Hadass Gold, this is the story where headlines said Haley spent 50 k on a curtain that was decided on during Obama administration. She corrected it. Educated Hillbilly, my eyes just rolled out of my head and down the hall, only a strong move after publication, which is true. And the most incredible thing was Yashir Ali, misleading headline. Fewer reading past the first couple graphs, and now most of the Twitter thinks Nikki Haley is like Pruitt or Price, when she's not. How irresponsible. Read the whole story. Also, the rent is less expensive than previous admins. JWF. And now most of Twitter thinks Nikki Haley is like Pruitt or Price. No, anyone who read the story knew this was a hit piece. It's entirely the left that's wetting themselves over this and spreading the bogus story. They know it's a lie and still keep spreading it. Well, want some proof? Stephen Hayes. Why mention Haley at all if she wasn't responsible for the purpose purchase in question? It was a badly executed hit piece that will further undermine conservatives' views of the mainstream media. In runs Ron Fortney, Fournier, whatever the fuck. Why use every mistake and transparent acknowledgement of the error to paint an industry? The bulwark of the First Amendment? With a broad wall, broad brush. Stephen Miller. Because these mistakes always go in one direction. You don't have a trademark on the First Amendment. Understand, this story was carried by everybody. The Hill, Newsweek, Time, MSDNC. And I think Fox... Network, or Fox Business Network, Charles Payne sums it up perfectly. Why massive mainstream media distrust? Example, 1,490 headlines. State Department spent $52,200 on Nikki Haley apartment curtains. Media reaction, outrage fact. Curtain order under Obama administration. Media reaction, crickets. Looking for the next outrage. And he's right. They're not making a big deal out of it. Reliable sources with fucking unreliable Brian Seltzer will not do a segment on this. But let Fox News do one thing and be wrong. Every network carries it. CNN carried this. They ran with this. But the New York Times, let's be honest. They're a liberal communication arm for the Democratic Party. And I'm not talking... The mainstream Democrats. We're talking the resistance. New York Times dodges abortion term, hails health care provider Planned Parenthood. Huge story. They never once talk about the abortion. Ever. 
Then, New York Times Broody gushes over 13 of the year's biggest stars, anti-Trump Democratic candidates. This is from last show. I never got it in here. Um, it, it is, she's brainy. She has a bachelor degree. This is just one person. From MIT, she's bold, serves in the U.S. Air Force. She has entrepreneurial bona fides from her years as the chief operating officer of an athletic wear company, but also as a top job for group promoting childhood literacy. She's a wife and a mother with two grown daughters. So why at 51 has she set her sights on the House of Representatives when she never ran for office before? The answer is November 8, 2016. To vote for Hillary Clinton, she put on a pantsuit. Her gay daughter wore all white, honoring suffragists. That night, they broke out the champagne. I thought that history would be made, Houlihan recalled. When it wasn't, her father, a Holocaust survivor, cried, fear that Donald Trump's victory could mean for the vulnerable and the powerless. Her daughter panicked for LGBT people. There are many ways to measure the urgency with which Democrats are approaching the 2018 midterm, perhaps none bigger than the metal motivations and number, much larger than in recent congressional elections of first-time candidates. Thirteen of them. Six podcasts ago, I literally read you every hit piece they did on every GOP candidate. And remember, they're the paper of record. Then Chuck Todd, which I've tweeted all his crazy Kavanaugh stuff, and Chris Saliza with his quote, they don't pick sides. Chuck Todd declares war on anti anti-media manipulators. CNN media analyst Brian Seltzer returned from vacation practice glowing his over, overnight newsletter over a new anti-conservative germad by NBC Chuck Todd in the Atlantic, a magazine that endorsed Hillary Clinton for president. The bizarre thesis is that somehow the liberal media hasn't engaged Trump and conservatives on the charge that they're a liberal mob. Haven't they all raged against being called the enemy of the people? Haven't they compared Trump to every mass-murdering dictator they can imagine? And yet, Seltzer announced, Chuck Todd's right. In an unusual and pointed piece for the Atlantic, which you all should read, Meet the Press Moderator Chuck Todd is urging all of us to recognize that anti-media manipulators are doing and respond accordingly. He's saying the days of don't engage are over, and I believe he's right. There's been, in Todd's word, a nearly 50-year campaign to delegitimize the press, but we did nothing because we were trained to say nothing. By failing to defend our work in real time from this onslaught, newsrooms helped accelerate the campaign to delegitimize the American press corps. Now with President Trump fueling the growing fire, Todd says the idea that our work will speak for itself is hopelessly naive. The dangerous anti-media hostility is somehow racist. The closet parallel is recent American history and the hostility to reporters in the segregated South, Todd proclaimed in a passage circulated on Twitter by Jeffrey Goldberg. Some of the wealthiest members of the media are not reporting reporters from the mainstream outlet. Figures such as Sean Hannity, Rush Limbaugh, Matt Drudge, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram have attained wealth and power by exploiting the fears of older white people. Boom, I'm stopping. Do you see it? So in it, he's saying Fox News are the manipulators. That's interesting. Because there's 95 liberal sources and one conservative once again. And none of you covered this. NBC DFW. Breaking pickup truck repeatedly rams Fox 4 studio in downtown Dallas. Texas Sky Ranger over the scene for four, Fox 4. The man who crashed pickup trunk trunk into the TV studio downtown Dallas, jumped out and started ranting. 
A man crashed a truck on the side of our building this morning. He jumped out and started ranting. He's in custody now, but the bomb squad's on his way. Describing scene as man who crashed a Fox 4 building, granting deployed, said man said something about high treason. Yeah. Stephen Miller at the time, this is old because I didn't get it in last time. I would just like rhetoric clarification. Clearly Seltzer, de Blasio, Darcy, daily attacks on Fox played a part in this. As did Chuck Todd's op in the Atlantic about fighting back. Those are the rules here, right? Other article I want to push it to, but I don't have time for today. Prager, Explain the Left, Part 3. Leftism as Secular Religion. You can find it on the Daily Wire, and it is spot on. It's a religion. Religion. Do our stats of the day without a bumper, and then we're going to do a ambiance today. Record low 12% cite economic issues as top U.S. problem. Media didn't cover that. Economy's booming. They hate that it's booming. Remember, they want a recession. Out of stock this holiday season, store workers. They're having a problem getting people to come in. Retail job openings outpace hiring, leading to extra perks such as profit sharing and paid time off. We don't yet know what the TV ratings for week two are, but there's a huge article showing all the fields empty, way down. In the seats. I noticed it this weekend when I watched. FedEx Field, LA Rams, numerous listed with pictures noticed in the game I watched is my notes on this article, which I probably shouldn't have read out, but I'll leave it there for people to make fun of me. Um, You could see, even the Jaguar Patriots, that stadium wasn't full. So, I don't know if it's a price thing or it's a problem thing. For the Rams, it's going to be a huge thing. How many fucking teams do you really need in LA? Seriously. Tim Allen on the State of Comedy. It is really like dancing on the thinnest ice. Tim Allen expressed a concern of a state of comedy at a recent event, suggesting that it could be dangerous for comedians who might say the wrong thing. You don't know what you're going to say to offend people, the last man standing actor said. Allen made the comment at this year's Paley Fest in Beverly Hills on Thursday, last week. Fox News reports, given the current hypersensitive climate, he suggests he, he has to use caution during his performance to avoid any blowback. It is really like dancing on the thinnest ice, he said. I've been in the comedy world for 30 years as a comic, and there's nothing more dangerous right now for all the comics. I know what we can and cannot say. I was listening to Dan Lebitard, and they had David Spade on. And he said, I, I don't know what to make jokes about anymore. The only thing you can actually make jokes about is white people and get away with it. You're fine if you make jokes about white people. Last night, those two bozos from SNL, the whole thing was bashing white people. That's funny. That's acceptable. You say anything else, you can't. And Spade was spot on, and Lebitard agreed with him, and he's a race hustler. Big time. So, huh. Then there was this nugget, AP fact checks Obama. He doesn't always tell a straight story. Yeah, because this week he made some statements out there on the thing, on on the fucking stump, and yeah, they were some humdingers. The article actually closed that little title with Get Some Smelling Salts, because that's surprising. But uh, let's be honest. All I have to say is, you can keep your doctor. Man, he got away with that shit. They helped him. Supreme Court did too. So, we're going to take an ambiance break. Today, we're going to do ocean, because I miss the ocean. In fact, I'm going to play some of my own ocean. Oh, yeah. I'm doing it. 
my own ocean. And then we'll come into our subject of the day. We're going to start with a Tucker Carlson soundbite about how the Google staff tried to fix the 2016 election. And that's only part of our subject because Google, you got some splaining to do. Tonight, an exclusive investigation from this show. For two years, the alleged threat that Russia poses to our elections has been official Washington's obsession. The usual business of government has come to a halt as Democrats and their allies in the press fret that Russian agents may be interfering with our democracy. The root of these fears, a handful of Russian ads on Facebook that almost nobody saw, and a small number of efforts to hack Democratic Party email accounts. Now, let's assume that all these deeply worried people are sincere, that they really care about the integrity of our democracy. 
then why has almost nobody said anything about the tech monopolies that now dominate the exchange of information in this country? If a few dozen Facebook ads are enough to subvert an election, shouldn't we be worried about Facebook itself, which controls literally billions of ads? A couple of times on this show, social scientist Robert Epstein has pointed out that Google alone could determine the outcome of almost any American election just by altering its search suggestions. We'd never know what happened. Oh, say tech defenders, don't worry. These are businesses. They exist to make money, not to push political agendas. Well, it turns out that's not true, and we can prove it. An email obtained exclusively by this show reveals that a senior Google employee deployed the company's resources to increase voter turnout in ways she believed would help the Clinton campaign win in the last election. The email we obtained came from a woman named Eliana Murillo, the former head of Google's multicultural marketing department. She sent the email on November 9th, 2016. That was one day after the presidential election. That email was subsequently forwarded by two Google vice presidents to more staff members throughout the company. In her email, Maria Murillo touts Google's multifaceted efforts to boost Hispanic turnout in the election. She notes that Latinos voted in record-breaking numbers, especially in states like Florida, Nevada, and Arizona, the last of which she describes as, quote, a key state for us. She brags that the company used its power to ensure that millions of people saw certain hashtags and social media impressions with the goal of influencing their behavior during the election. Elsewhere in the email, Murillo says Google, quote, supported partners like Voto Latino to pay for rides to the polls in key states. She describes this assistance as, quote, a silent donation. Murillo then says that Google helped Voto Latino create ad campaigns to promote those rides. Now, officially, Voto Latino is a nonpartisan entity, but that is a sham. Voto Latino is vocally partisan. Recently, the group declared that Hispanics, all Hispanics, are in President Trump's, quote, crosshairs. They said they plan to respond to this by registering another million additional Hispanic voters in the next presidential cycle. Voto Latino is a group with clear political goals, goals that Google supported in 2016. We asked both Google and Voto Latino for clarification. What exactly did Murillo mean by a silent donation? This is a potentially significant legal question. Neither company responded to us. At the end of her email, Murillo makes it clear that Google was working to get Hillary Clinton elected. This wasn't a get out the vote effort, whatever they say. It was not aimed at all potential voters. It wasn't even aimed at a balanced cross-section of subgroups. Google didn't try to get out the vote among, say, Christian Arabs in Michigan or Persian Jews in Los Angeles. They sometimes vote Republican. It was aimed only at one group, a group that Google cynically assumed would vote exclusively for the Democratic Party. Furthermore, this mobilization effort targeted not the entire country, but swing states vital to the Hillary campaign. This was not an exercise in civics. This was political consulting. It was, in effect, an in-kind contribution to the Hillary Clinton for President campaign. In the end, Google was disappointed. As Murillo herself conceded, quote, Ultimately, after all was said and done, the Latino community did come out to vote and completely surprised us. We never anticipated that 29% of Latinos would vote for Trump. No one did. If you see a Latino Googler in the office, please give them a smile. They are probably hurting right now. You can rest assured that the Latinos of these blue states need your thoughts and prayers for them and their families. I had planned a vacation and thought I would be taking the time to celebrate. 
Now it will be time to reflect on how to continue to support my community through these difficult times." End quote. Nobody at the DNC was more upset by the results than Murillo. Google tried to get Hillary elected. They failed this time. We reached out to Google. The company did not deny that the email was real or that it showed a clear political preference. Their only defense was that the activities it described were either nonpartisan or weren't taken officially by the company. But of course, they were both. Plenty of people in Google knew what was going on, and we've seen no evidence that anyone at Google disapproved of it or tried to rein it in. Two years later, Google is more powerful than it's ever been, and the left has increasingly become radical in what it is willing to do to regain political power. What could Google be doing this election cycle to support its preferred candidates? What could they do in 2020? It is a question almost nobody in Washington seems interested in even asking. They ought to be interested. Damning stuff. Did Google staff try to fix 2016 election for Clinton? In 2016, some at Google alleged realized that it had political power and tried to flex it against President Trump. An exclusive report broken by Fox News' Tucker Carlson on his show, Tucker Carlson Tonight, revealed a disturbing Google email chain sent on a November 9, 2016. The first email, election results, and the Latino vote was written by Google's multicultural marketing department head, Elena Murillo. In the four-page email, Marilla describes how she and her co-workers engaged in nonpartisan activities to boost Latino voting turnout. However, Marilla slipped up and admitted that despite Google's political power and only 71% of Latino voted for Hillary, and that wasn't enough. At first, the memo had no mention of partisanship. Marillo stated that she and her colleagues worked very hard, blah, 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 blah. However, the results came, caught her off guard, and showed more about the reality of the campaign. Ultimately, after all was said and done, the Latino community did come out to vote and completely surprised us. We never anticipated that 29% of Latinos would vote for Trump. Murillo apparently had seen a headline claiming that the early Latino vote meant Trump is dead in the election. On a personal note, we really thought we had shown up to demonstrate our political power against a candidate who has vehemently offended our community by calling us rapists and drug dealers. He never did that. We read the headline and thought, wow, we did it. She continued, but then reality set in. Only 71% of Latino voted for Hillary, and that wasn't enough. Murillo then admitted that she was not objective in trying to get the Latino vote, saying that in 2016 results were devastating for our democratic Latino community. HOLA, the project created by Google and its partner from Latino Vote, had thread where people were sharing how much they hurt. After the Trump election, Marilla was worried about contacting her partners over there because some may actually be Trump supporters. I'm in shock and it hurts more than I can ever have imagined, but trying to stay optimistic and keep my head high. Loss is a part of life and I do think frustrations challenge us to work smarter and get creative. My partners have sent notes and are saying the same thing. Time to keep working harder. In another company email, Google search product marketing official Mackenzie Thomas called Marilla's work 100% partisan. This wasn't a get-out-the-vote effort or whatever they say. It was aimed only at one group. This is Tucker Carlson. One group, a group that Google cynically assumed would vote exclusively for Democrats. Democrats in office referred to conservative fear of bias in Google as conspiracy theory. Last week when the House convened a hearing of Twitter, the majority Democrats representative claimed that the reason for the hearing, conservative censorship, was bogus and a load of crap. Recently, Google has come under fire for its bias in search results, promoting negative news about President Trump. Google, of course, denies the nature. 
A spokesman to Breivart said the view expressed in this email of the employee's personal political views are not representative of official stance for the company. Google elections efforts, both in 2016 and leading up to this year's midterms, have been entirely nonpartisan. Yeah, bullshit. We'll hear in a second. Not surprisingly, network morning shows black out bombshell. FNC's Tucker Carlson broke the story, blah, 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 blah. Okay, ABC Good Morning, CBS This Morning, NBC Today spent any time on this shocking development. However, on this morning's edition of Good Morning America, correspondents of Taryn Palmieri did find time to advance Google's spin that they didn't favor any party in their searches. During an interview with Donald Trump Jr., Palmieri turned to Google to knock down the president's son's concern about the tech company's business. Yeah. Okay. Other article, pro-Hillary collusion at Google, Univision, Vote Latino, breaks it down. It's facts. It's their email. It doesn't end in our social media. Other stories, Benghazi hero suspended for Twitter after criticizing Obama. Chris Pronto, a CIA contractor fighting terrorists during the 2012 Benghazi attack, called the account a retard. His response to the count was, oh my God, did you just tell the guy who shot Bin Laden that Barack Obama did it? Thank you for verifying that the Barack Hussein Obama worship and TDS causes liberals to skip retard and go straight to potato. This tweet was considered hate speech because he said retard. Hmm. On his Facebook, yes, boys and girls and leftists, we have the right to free speech, but only if it fits the left's narrative, doesn't show their stupidity and ignorance, and most importantly, doesn't hurt their fragile little ego. Yeah. Then, I'm going to play the video, but I want to break down what you're going to hear. Leaked video shows Google co-founder Sergey Brin comparing Trump voters to fascists as he vows to thwart rise of populism in the aftermath of the 2016 presidential election. And before I break it down, it might be a lazy subject that I'm paying 30, playing 37 minutes, but the 37 minutes is the subject. This is them talking. This isn't any freaking Project Veritas. There's no editing. I literally took an hour and some change video, extorted it down to just key points, because... There's a lot of clapping and ass-kissing. It was a company meeting. But during it, footage obtained by Breitbart News shows Google leadership discussing the results. They were filmed at the first conference of 2016 after the election took place. Google co-founder Sergey Brin says he feels deeply offended by the results. Brin later says data shows a correlation between boredom and voting for Trump. He then goes on to argue that there's a link between boredom and fascism. Sundar Pachi, Google CEO, also says there's a lot of fear after the results. Ruth Porat, the CFO, appears to break down in tears when discussing the election. Porat also instructed the audience to hug one another and said, we all can't move to fucking Canada. I'm adding that in because I listened to it. They can't take us up there. They just can't. Senior VP for Global Affairs, Kent Walker, says the company will stop populism. Walker says that populism could lead to a world war or something catastrophic. Catastrophic. Let's say English. Sorry. Instead, Walker says that Google must ensure populism is just a blip or a hiccup. The video was leaked as Google faces questions from the president over bias. Trump tweeted last week that Google was burying conservative search results. In this, you will hear them say, this conflicts 
with our company values. And you will hear people ask questions from the audience. These are minions. And you'll understand why random people block the president off Twitter, go after just conservatives. Because these questions aren't questions. They are virtue signaling in the middle of a sea of virtue signalers. It's how much can I suck the boss's ass and show that I'm a good liberal. It's long. It's worth every second. Please listen. Okay, folks. I know this is probably not the most joyous uh, TJF we have had. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, let's face it, most uh, people here are uh, pretty upset and pretty sad for uh, because of the election. Um, but there's another group, a uh, small group, that we should also think about who are very excited about the legalization of pot. Uh, um, I was asking if we could serve joints outside on the patio. Apparently these things take a little while to take effect. A huge, huge disappointment. Um, I've been bemoaning that all week, I'll be honest with you. Um, uh, but uh, anyway, on a more uh, serious note, you know, myself um, uh, as an immigrant and a refugee, um, I'm, I certainly find this election uh, deeply offensive, and I know many of you do too. Um, and, and I think it's a very stressful time, uh, and it uh, conflicts with many of our values. Um, I think it's, uh, it's a good time to reflect on that, and uh, you know, we're going to uh, hopefully uh, share some thoughts uh, today. Um, I guess you know, there are two dominant... Um, you know, reasons to be upset. One is because, you know, so many people uh, apparently don't share uh, many of the values that we have. Um, I mean, I guess we've known that for many months now. I mean, it's not like, you know, election terms, whether it was like 47.2% or 48.2% or whatever it was. Um, and it's always been uh, a lot of people that uh, apparently feel that way. Um, but, uh, you know, certainly confronting it firsthand... Um, is uh, is pretty upsetting, uh, and secondly, confronting the reality of an administration that's uh, that's now forming, and look, we have no idea what it's going to do. This is the honest truth. Like we have no idea what direction this country will take, um, whether whatever the past policy proposals were serious or not, or whatnot, and it's a period of great uncertainty, and um, you know it's uncertain for many of us here. Um, you know, especially immigrants or minorities, uh, women. Um, uh, I mean, so many people, and and just generally, you know, people who you know have kids and wonder about their world. Um, so, uh, I don't have great answers for you up here today, but I think it's important that uh, we we chat about it, and um, 
more thoughtful about it in the coming months. And with that, Sundar. Thanks, Sergei. It's good to, good to see all of you here. I'm glad uh, we're getting together uh, at a moment like this. Uh, you know, it's been an extraordinarily stressful time, I'm sure, for uh, may, many of you. Uh, you know, it, it, the, the outcome, uh, you know, in a, in a two-party system uh, with, with a lot of polarization in the country, it's a deeply divided country, and you have a binary outcome, uh, right? There is no easy way through this. And you know, historically, all political processes are stressful and tough, particularly if the outcome is not what you hope for. On top of that, I think all of us would agree this election was particularly hard. Uh, there was a lot of rhetoric, uh, you know, and, uh, and there were a lot of groups targeted. Uh, and so I think all of that makes it a very hard cycle, uh, especially with our values. But I hope, uh, you know, a couple things I would say is... You know, it's important to remember, uh, you know, we are in a democratic system. And, you know, it's heartening to see actually a transition happen properly. And, you know, I grew up in India, and there were a lot of things wrong. But it was a democratic country. And we've gone through many, many, many hairy moments like this, right? And it's a country of, uh, you know, poor, it was a poor country of uh, one-plus billion people going through a democratic process with many more divided opinions than what you're seeing here. And I've seen over time, have faith in it, uh, it tends to work out. Uh, there are many, many scary moments when it looks like the wheels are coming off. Uh, but, you know, it tends to make through okay, and you know, it seems to be better than any other system out there. So I think we should keep that in mind. Uh, I think it's a good moment of uh, reflection, uh, introspection, and listening to each other, too. I think part of the reason the outcome ended up the way it is is uh, people don't feel heard across, uh, across both sides. And I think, I think it's important to reach out and talk to each other. There is a lot of fear within Google. And you know, I've gotten a lot of emails uh, you know, to my note back. Uh, you know, and you know, I would tell most Googlers there are people who are very afraid. Uh, and you know, Sergey pointed out the, uh, you know, uh, you know, many groups, you know, women, blacks, you know, people who are afraid based on religion people who are afraid because they are not sure of their status, uh, the LGBTQ community, and I can go on. There, there is a lot of fear, and so I think, I think it's important to reach out, be aware of that fear. Uh, I would be sensitive and try and talk and have conversations uh, to the extent possible. We are so deeply committed to our values. Uh, you know, Sergey mentioned, uh, mentioned at the start, nothing will change. I think we'll stand up always for the values we uh, believe in. And especially, I think, in a society, you stand up for people uh, who are minorities. And that's what defines a society. And we'll continue to do that. Uh, I think we have a few people who are going to come and say thoughts. I'm not sure I can get through everything I wanted to say. So I'm going to have Ken come, say a few things, and we'll come back. And uh, we have a few more people to add thoughts. So look, it, it was a shock to, to all of us, the results of the election. Uh, it, it was a, a fair and democratic process, and, and we honor that. But at the same time, it showed an incredible level of division among Americans. And that's something that gives us pause 
and, and focuses on how did we misunderstand that? What can we do to reach out to people whose perspective we have a hard time understanding? But it's not just a challenge for America. It's a challenge that goes well beyond America. The implications for the rest of the world are vast, and the echoes around the world are, are significant. This is not the first sign we've seen of this rising tide of nationalism, populism, and concern. There are, there are drivers of globalization and immigration which have sparked movements throughout Europe, throughout Asia, throughout Latin America. You see not just Brexit, but rising uh, new parties that are coming onto the scene, splintering of traditional parties. Uh, we've seen it through Germany and France. Italy has a referendum next month. The Philippines, Thailand, big chunks of Latin America. Um, we're trying to figure out what our, our right next steps are in that, but we recognize that globalization and the internet have been an incredible force for change. They have brought hundreds of millions of people out of extreme poverty around the world. Incredible force for good. But all politics is local, goes the old phrase. And if you're in Pennsylvania or Birmingham, you may not care that somebody in Delhi is getting a new job or that somebody in Jakarta is getting better health care. You care about what's happened to you and your family. And you're seeing this sense of stagnation that you're not better off than your parents, and you're afraid that you, your kids might not be better off than you are, and what's the path forward? And the forces out there are seem well beyond you, globalization, immigration, trade, whatever, and you're afraid, and you're trying to look for answers. And that fear, I think, not just in the United States, but around the world, is what's fueling concerns, xenophobia, hatred, uh, and a desire for, for answers that may or may not be there. It's feeling a distrust of, of experts and disregard of traditional institutions. And we're trying to figure out how do we respond to that? What are the next steps for us before the world comes into this environment of tribalism uh, that's, that's self-destructive on the long term? There are, there are cycles of these things that often can last five, 10 years before people feel as though you know, that they've had a chance to vent that anger and yet, we do think that history is on our side in a profound and an important way. That Martin Luther King made famous a, a line that the moral arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. I would say that the moral arc of history is long, but it bends toward progress. And out of progress comes rising living standards and better health care, and ultimately the ability to transcend those forces of tribalism and, yes, reach toward justice. So for 500 years, technology and trade has risen, have raised living standards around the world, and I think there's every sign that we'll continue to do that. That as we help that change come to pass, while it may be that the internet and globalization were part of the cause of this problem, we are also fundamentally an essential part of the solution to this problem. Prime Minister Matteo Renzi in Italy talks about two worlds, the world of the wall and the world of the square. The world of the wall, the world of the fortress, the world of the silo, isolation and defensiveness. And the world of the square, the piazza, the agora, the marketplace, where people come together into a community and enrich each other's lives. The tools that we build help people come into the world of the square. You saw the video about Missouri Star Quilt. 
changing the fortunes of not just a family, not just a community, the entire village was made better by the tools that we make every day. We help people come together, build together, cooperate, communicate. Google is a trusted source of information for people around the world. That's incredibly valuable at times like this. To make that happen, to figure out how we're going to navigate not only continuing to make transformative products and making the world a better place, and yeah, I'll say it even though they mock Silicon Valley for believing it, we need to be able to work together. We need to have each other's back. We need to stand together in a time that's going to be incredibly difficult as we advocate for our values and we see what not only the US administration but other administrations around the world take shape, how they take shape over the next few years. I would say, please, understand each other, trust each other, trust in the rule of law, and let me turn it over to first Ruth and then Eileen to talk about how we internally can continue that work of building bridges and working together. So for what it's worth, um, I've been a very long time Hillary supporter. But as Kent said, the most important thing is I very much respect the outcome of the democratic process and who any one of us voted for is really not the point because the values that are held dear at this company transcend politics because we're going to constantly fight to preserve them. <clears throat> I want to take you back to um, 8.30 p.m. on Tuesday night. I was at home with friends and family watching the election returns. And uh, as we started to see the direction of the voting, I reached out to someone close to me who was at the Javits Center where the big celebration was supposed to occur in New York City, somebody who had been working on the campaign. And um, I just sent him a note and said, are, you know, are you okay? It looks like it's going the wrong way. And I got back a very sad short text um, that read, people are leaving. Staff is crying, we're going to lose. Uh, that was the first moment I really felt like we were going to lose. And it was this massive like, kick in the gut that we were going to lose. And it was really painful. And the thing that hit me, and I've talked about it here before, was like Sergei, my, my father was a refugee, and we moved to this country. And as a child, what I was always told is, he fought hard, worked hard to get my sister and brother and I to this country because he wanted to, he wanted us to grow up in a place unlike what he had, a place where you could, you would never be discriminated against based on who you were, the color of your skin, your religion, your beliefs. Um, and that's the thing that kept going through my head on Tuesday. And um, it did feel like a ton of bricks dropped on my chest and I've had a chance to talk to a lot of fellow Googlers and people have said different words, similar concept, this, how, painful is it, how painful this is. But I think there are three really important things that we should think about and talk about. First, throughout the campaign, Hillary said, we are a great country because we are a good country. And I firmly believe that. We are a good country. Second, one of the things that really struck me in her, her concession speech the next morning is she said, please never stop believing that fighting for what's right is worth it. And that is critical. We all have an obligation to fight for what's right and to never stop fighting for what's right. 
And that's one of the many things that I think makes this company so beautiful. Our values are strong, we will fight to protect them, and we will use the great strength and resources and reach we have to continue to advance really important values. And the third message that's super important is the message from the election that a lot of people clearly felt disenfranchised, left out. We talk a lot about rising inequality, but how corrosive rising inequality is, is the other really important message from this. And on that, we similarly have a very important role to play, as do, as do many others. So I think the main thing I just wanted to say is give yourself time and space to deal with whatever you're going through. Healing is a process. It does take time. But one thing that makes Alphabet and Google so special is this term I heard. I'd never heard it before I got here, which is this is a place where you can bring your whole self to work. And we want everybody, wherever you were on the political spectrum, whatever it is, it's about respect for one another and continuing to ensure that we do that and making this a safe place where it's super clear everyone can bring their whole self to work and be respected. So showing kindness to everyone around you is the most important thing. I feel super blessed to have had the opportunity to be a part of this community and especially at times, um, at times like now. So yesterday, I, um, Eileen and I had a, a town hall for some of our orgs and um, I suggested that what we all need right now is a hug. So everybody, if you could turn around or go to the person next to you and do a hug, it works. <laughs> the second question is around internal mobility. Can I move to Canada? Now, one could guesstimate that at least 50% of Americans are interested in moving to Canada right now. And that might mean maybe at least 50% of Googlers might be interested in moving to Canada. Uh, Toronto and uh, Waterloo can't handle us all, I'm afraid. And, but it's a, it's a really, it's a good question. <laughs> as we're, we constantly look at what makes sense and what would Googlers actually really like, so we'll, we'll continue looking at it. Um, yeah. I would, I would, here, I'll throw up my theory here. Uh, I think everybody's presuming that some of these folks left behind are, you know, specifically the people who voted for Trump. I don't think the data quite supports that. I mean, I know there's the kind of geographic, roughly speaking, spread, but in fact, Hillary won the low-income vote. In fact, people under $100,000 support Hillary and over 100000 support Trump. Um, I actually looked at the data, you know, fairly carefully, and um, uh, I think the... The biggest relationship was whether people had really routine jobs um, in, a, in an area, and that correlated highly uh, with Trump's support versus having non-routine jobs. And there's actually a lot of historical precedent for boredom being a huge factor in vote uh, choice, um, and actually in building extremism. In fact, we've had a lot of work on uh, Jigsaw on uh, extremism. Um, that's, uh, um, that shows high correlation to simple boredom, you know. Um, also, when people vote, and, you know, I know people who voted for Trump and people who abstained and people who voted for Johnson and so forth, like, voting is not a rational act. As all of you know, for those of you who are in California, it's like there's just no point in voting in the presidential election in particular because California can't possibly matter. Um... <laughs> And, uh, but still go out and vote. <laughs> well, this is between us. I... 
but, but even in the so-called swing states, you know, there are tens of thousands of votes apart. So there's no, like, the point of voting uh, is different than, you know, you actually choosing the president. Um, there are a lot of people, in fact, I've talked to the people who, you know, voted in various ways that I might not have agreed with. And, like, if they were had to actually choose the president, they would have made a different choice. And actually, with Brexit, that's also true. Um, it's just a different emotional act. And, like, it feels kind of good to just, like, give D.C. a big kick when you vote. Like, it feels good. Like, I can kind of get that. Um, so, I don't know. I think there are a lot of reasons that people, you know, might have voted the way they did. I don't think it's all attributable to, you know, huge income disparity, although I think income disparity is a negative trend. Uh, it's not a good thing. Um, but I think, uh, I think people are being kind of quick to rush to judgment. It's, uh, it's a very good point. Yeah. You know, the first question is about bubbles and confirmation bias yeah. and stuff. That's a good question, except people at the end of the election are doing the same thing, right? And, uh, you know, all of us are quick to understand, and there's a very good analysis uh, on 538. If one in 100 people had switched the vote the other way, you know, we would be having a very different electoral outcome, and people would be asking a very different set of questions saying, this is why this, is, this happened. And, uh, you know, so you're talking about it's a very deeply divided country, and voting in only a two-party system uh, when people are going through a complicated, layered decision-making process, partly rational, partly irrational, uh, you know, is, is very, very complicated. And same way, I wouldn't interpret every vote. While this campaign had a lot of rhetoric and, uh, you know, a lot of bad things as part of the campaign, uh, you know, we've all been talking about it. I'm sure many of you have members, family members, coworkers, etc. Not everyone who voted on the other side actually stands for everything that is represented as part of that. And so, uh, you know, so we have to work our way through it. Um, okay, with that uh, audience question, yes. Yeah, so with rapid technological pro progress, we've seen that like policy and regulation have not been able to keep pace with technological developments. And as that accelerates, we're gonna see even more fundamental societal change on top of what we already have. And I have concerns that this administration is going to have a very hard time addressing that. So how do we, as a leader in tech, help make sure that policy and regulation can even potentially keep pace with technological progress and that people aren't getting left behind? Let me answer most of that, and then I mean, I'll try all of it, and then others can jump in. The job of our folks in D.C. and around the world is to try and educate policymakers. Oftentimes that's hard, and regardless of the administration. Uh, and many times the folks from, uh, haven't grown up with the same technologies we're talking about, or we're talking about technologies that no one's seen before. And we're trying to explain how they work, how they benefit people, how they'll impact economies. That work continues. Uh, you're right. I think in some cases, uh, the next question coming up is about encryption. I think that's one where we're going to need to get in and explain the, the merits of our position to people who may not have heard it before or, or internalized it before. That's important. We'll try and move the needle as, as strongly as we can. I don't know what's going to happen but there's a chance it could be bad, it could be really bad. I think that we should hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Is that how you think about it? Uh, it's a good look, I mean, the, the question you're asking is on many, many people's minds. Uh, you know, as I said, I've gotten many, many emails about this, and, uh, you know, uh, the early indications, you know, in the last 24, 48 hours, uh, you know, have been okay, and there are a lot of, uh, you know, there's a long history of 
how things have worked in, worked in the U.S. It's a very, very, uh, you know, well-functioning democracy, and there's a lot of institutions uh, which drive the right outcome as well. Ken gave an example for uh, the encryption question. So I think, you know, you know, uh, you know, we all are in the same position. You are asking the question, which is we are trying to predict the future. But I think, uh, you know, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I have faith in the democratic process is, is what I would say. Um, okay. Uh, you know, as a Muslim, uh, you know, I'm really worried. Um, and what will Google do to take a public stand to defend minorities? Uh, I personally wrote a blog post on it externally uh, on, the, on the same thing. And so, you know, as Ken said, you know, all our values, you know, nothing has changed and we'll, we'll always take strong positions. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't expect any of that to change at all. And we'll be very strong and vocal and, uh, you know, not just you know, from a press standpoint or a PR standpoint, but actually working hard behind the scenes uh, to stand up for what's right. Remember, we've, we've, been, we've long been in favor of comprehensive immigration reform. We continue to be in favor of comprehensive immigration reform. And it's important to recognize that while the Republicans and, and the Trump administration, the Trump administration, they have a majority in the Senate, a majority in the House, they don't have a supermajority in the Senate. There's not a, uh, not, they don't have the 60 votes necessary to override uh, a, a filibuster. So there will be some form of check and balance in the legislative process going forward and some opportunity to try and make meaningful progress. So as a candidate, Donald Trump once said that he wished for the Russian government to hack the emails of his political opponent. And I know, like, maybe he wasn't serious, and who knows what a Trump administration would actually do. It's probably best to wait and see before taking a drastic action. But in my opinion, one of the bravest things this company has ever done is our 2010 letter, A New Approach to China, where we took a very bold stance on the Chinese government um, okay, uh, I think we talked about this extensively, but uh, maybe we could talk a little bit more about H-1Bs. Well, the immigration stance. I think in some of uh, Mr. Trump's rhetoric, uh, it was symbolic language used to galvanize a base. He's a businessman, purportedly, and has employed... <laughs> He's employed... Um, uh, workers with visas. He's employed undocumented uh, uh, workers. So I, I actually don't see an immediate issue that's flaring. I, I would believe being pro-business as a Republican, he would uh, understand the needs of certain sectors to have uh, HB1B visas, etc. So let's see how this plays out. Um, I think it's too soon to panic. And, and the other thing to add to that is for Ever since we've been debating immigration reform, there's been strong bipartisan consensus in both houses of Congress that H-1B visas are a great thing for the United States as well as for the people who use them. So I don't see those majorities in, changing, in Congress changing. Um, okay, are we amplifying people's existing beliefs through our personalization algorithms? You know, there is a lot of uh, you know talk underway, and you know it's, it's a particular question being asked outside of social media as well. And so, obviously, YouTube is a big part of it. Um, I think I would like to see a bit more, you know, scientific and data-based and uh, empirical work around this to 
to understand what's happening, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, and I, so I, I, I'm not fully sure I fully understand uh, what's happening there at a deeper level. But I think it's something we should think a lot about our products. As I said, you know, we, we core to our goal is, uh, you know, getting information. A bigger question I'm also worried is, I think we think we are getting information and improving knowledge, but I don't think it's reaching certain people at all. So there seems to be a selection bias. People who are able to acquire the knowledge, I think they, get, they have more and more better tools and better ways to do it. But I think there are people who are completely being left out too. So these are all good questions to ask and work through as we head into next year. Um, audience question, yes. So Google's mission is to organize the world's information and make it useful. But during this election cycle, we've seen a lot of uh, misinformation, disinformation. We've seen a lot of fake news coming from fake news websites being shared by millions of low-information voters on social media. And ultimately, there's been many, many people who've been voting, who've been acting based on completely made-up uh, information. So can Google do anything to try to filter this out, to tr try to do something against uh, very organized, very intense uh, campaigns of disinformation targeted at, at low-information people? Look, I, I think our investments in machine learning and AI is a big opportunity here. Uh, you know, there are work we have done. Uh, the Jigsaw team did around what they call conversation AI around, you know, to, to look at bullying and, you know, commenting. And so a lot of this is a problem of scale and not being able to keep up. So, like, human systems fail in many of these things. So I think, but, you know, investing more in machine learning and AI could be one way we actually make progress on some of this, uh, the, uh, some of this stuff. Uh, but I think we should do more. Uh, and, and probably worth noting, it also ties into cybersecurity because we saw a lot of cyber trolling, you know, by like nation states cyber trolling, uh, and basically Russia. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, we've seen it over time. I guess I don't know. It was never really taken all that seriously. But you know, all the comment boards, and everything um, by these like faux trolls. So that, that's something else I. I think we ought to really focus on. Uh, audience question, yes. Uh, one of the main messages I've gotten from all of you today is that this election and others like it around the world are a hiccup in history's arc towards progress. But uh, what makes you so sure about that? I mean, is this a relatively new arc, or is this the same arc that has included two world wars? Since it's my metaphor, I'll take it up. Um, the, the, there are no guarantees, right? And there are, hiccup is a kind word. There, history is not a linear pattern. We do everything we can to keep it moving in a good direction. Uh, if you look over the broad reach of any 20, 50, 100 year period, there's less death, life, and life expectancy goes up. People are doing better, more prosperous. The arc does go like this exponentially in terms of standards of living around the world. Yes, it's not completely smooth. It goes up and down. And I think history teaches us that there are periods of populism, of, of nationalism that rise up. And we, that's all the reason we need to be in the arena. That's why we have to work so hard to make sure it doesn't turn into a world war or something catastrophic, but instead is a blip, is a hiccup. But I, I would say echo um, Kent's last sentence because the reason I, I commented on Hillary's 
statement that we have to continue to believe that we sh we can fight for that which we value, and it's all of our obligation. We can't give up. We can't be complacent. We have to know what our values are, and we have to fight for them, and protect them. And that's what we're committed to doing. Because I think if you just let arcs drift, who the hell knows which way they drift? Excuse my language, but um, whatever. Um, so, <laughs> so I think you, it is. It's incumbent on all of us, people who don't stand up and fight for those that Sundar said so beautifully in his opening comments. Then bad stuff happens. So we have to fight for it, or it can end up going the wrong direction. That's what we're going to do. Thank Yeah, and I further, I think it's worth really worrying about. I think, you know, and there's, you know, data suggests that boredom led to the rise of fascism and also to the communist revolution. I mean, there are many other factors, too. Um, but, uh, you know, it sort of sneaks up uh, sometimes, you know, really bad things. So I think it's, it's worth being very vigilant and thinking about all these issues. What can we do to lead to maybe a better quality of governance, decision-making, and so forth. Yeah, I was just going to say, I've been looking at governance in general. So, you know, as the election, you know, results came out, people were like, oh, you know, 50% of people were unhappy. Well, I mean, a third of people were deeply angry at their national governments. And I forget, another 20-ish percent are pretty darned angry. Um, and that's actually been true for a long time. And it's been trending down. So I think, you know, you think... Wait, you mean more angry or less angry? More angry. More angry, okay. Yeah. Down those and more angry. Yeah, it's been getting worse. And I think, so I think, um, anyway, that's been something I've been very concerned about for a while. So I think you can also look at the election in context to that. It was reported that, like, that was news. But if you ask people that, like, you know, a year ago, you get the same answer. Um, so I do think we have a lot of structural problems in our democracies which I think is really, if you're worried about, you know, the World War III kind of cases, you know, I think a lot of that will be driven by this deep dissatisfaction um, that people have, which I think some of which is really warranted. Um, so I guess I've been looking at a lot of the structural issues that are causing that. You know, I do think there's a lot of increasing complexity in our governance, which isn't really causing better outcomes for people. I think people feel that kind of intuitively. And we don't have an answer to that. Like, people aren't even talking about that. So um, I'd also encourage people to kind of maybe try to look past the election itself and also think about what's been happening for the last 10 years, last 20 years, look at those trends, and look at the election in the context of that um, and how we solve those problems and make things better. And, and maybe worth noting, I mean, that's a broad issue. I mean, beyond... Uh beyond Trump specifically, who I know many of us find very offensive. Uh, but, you know, in as much, and I know there are a number of Hillary supporters here, I mean, a lot of people might, you know, view her and more broadly the Democratic Party being also very, you know, polarized and uh, having its own set of issues. So um, I think higher quality governance, you know, would benefit uh, everyone. Um, okay, we have two more questions, I guess. Okay, be super fast, yes, or... Sorry, I'll take one at each mic. Sorry, sir, maybe. Uh, speaking yeah. to white men, there's an opportunity for you right now to understand your privilege in the society. Take the opportunity to go through the bias-busting training, read about privilege, read about the real history of oppression in our country, and tomorrow night, watch 13th, the movie that is here. If you can't watch it here, watch it on Netflix. 
Discuss the issues you are passionate about during Thanksgiving dinner, and don't back down and laugh it off when you hear the voice of oppression speak through metaphors, and I promise to do this. And last question, yes. Is there anything positive you see from this election result? <laughs> uh, boy, that's, that's a really tough one right now. No, um, I, I, I can tell one. To be very clear, uh, you know, in his acceptance speech, he said, you should spend more and improve its infrastructure. And I think a lot of us who have felt that for a while, I think there's a lot more to be done to improve the infrastructure of U.S., so there's a positive thing. That's, I'd also say, um, I mean, I do think, like, you know, national government's been very gridlocked. Yeah. You know, we do have a situation here where, obviously, Republicans have a lot of control over what happens and responsibility for that. Um, so hopefully something good will come out of that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also worth saying, I mean, I find a lot of, so many things that Trump said very offensive, and I don't have very high hopes, but... He could do anything. I mean, you have no idea. It's just, you really don't know. Um, so, I don't know. Maybe he'll do something great. Who knows? Um, it'll take a little bit of uh, wishful thinking. But, um, but uh, which uh, I will note, if you have wishful thinking, there is food and drink on the patio, and be careful of the cookies. <laughs> Now take your D off, or your L for liberal, or your resistance. Tell me how that is not partisan. How? I mean, before this ever broke, poll 67% of Republicans say Google search is biased. Big tech companies have been trying to say that they don't favor one political ideology over another, but their users don't agree. And Axios, Axios, that's liberal, poll released on September 6th shows that a large number of people believe Google research results are skewed to favor a certain side. Two-thirds of those who identify as Republicans, 67%, say they were concerned that internet search engines were biased to favor a liberal point of view. Government regulations were also key part of the survey, with an overall 51% expressing concern that the government would do not do enough to regulate the Internet. 47% of the Republicans, 52% of independents, and 55% of Democrats fear that the comp- government will not do enough to regulate technology companies. Overall, 36% of those surveyed believe that Google searches favor the left. Republicans weren't the only ones expressing the concern. 13% of those identified Democrats and 29% of those who are independents said, it was a concern. More specifically, 73% of conservatives stated that internet search engines, engines produce results skewed toward leftist ideology, along with 53% of modern moderate Republicans and patriots, 30% of independent voters. This replicates the results of a poll conducted by McLaughlin and Associates released by the Media Research Center, which stated that 64.6% of those polled believe that the social media companies are purposely censoring conservatives and conservative ideas from their sites. The Axios poll addressed other aspects of tech company problems when it came to trusting technology companies, especially when dealing with foreign interference on their platforms during election cycles. Almost no one had complete trust in the company's abilities. Democrats and 
independents or Republicans were almost in agreement. 57% surveyed did not have much trust or any trust in all the companies. It's just a fact. You can Google search conservative shit. You're going to get liberal stuff. You will look for stuff that is against Trump. Liberals hate Trump. They'll pump stories in that Trump's the devil from the New York Times, Washington Post, MSDNC, CNN, as we showed. They tried to play off the PJ media, and, and you know, Chris Cuomo said, oh, they're just a fucking clearing house for conservatives. They're spot on. Do it yourself. There's a reason why the dumbest person in the world was George, George Bush. That you search for Hitler, you get Trump. That you search GOP, you get Nazis. Those little minions in that audience, they literally were saying liberal ethos. And it's just not Google, Twitter. Twitter is so liberal that its conservative employees don't feel safe to express their opinions. Who said that? Oh, some conservative Trump dude. Some mega hat wearing motherfucker. No, that was Jack Dorsey, libs. Jack Dorsey. And why would they feel that? Well, how about just one nugget? Just one. Because I do it every show. I don't have to really prove this shit. It's there. The pudding has been made. The proof is in that pudding. Twitter promoted a Muslim female genital mutilation tweet. They promoted it. Pro-life advertisements on Twitter are censored immediately, but ads for female genital mutilation, those get approved. The Dawoodi Bora woman of religious freedom posted a tweet on September 9th promoting kahas, or female circumcision. This tweet was allowed by Twitter ads to become a sponsored tweet popping up in people's feeds. I fucking saw this tweet. I lost my fucking mind. Yeah. The group, a branch of Shiite Muslim community, promotes female circumcision and claims that it's been wrongly classified as female genital mutilation. The tweet, DBWRF. My daughters have also undergone kafas. I don't think I'm saying that right, but I really don't care because it's disgusting. And they're growing up as perfectly as other children of their age. As a mother, I can never do anything to harm them, says Arwa Sabagawama, chartered account Kabalababa. Mm-hmm. On September 13th, the tweet were no longer promoted. Twitter communication told media research center an exclusive statement. These self-promoted tweets were found to be violation of our ad policies. We took action to suspend the campaign immediately. The promoted tweet included a video of a raw Sagabawa, a Dawoodi Bara member, saying that my daughter is blah, 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 blah. However, the Dawoodi Bara community has its members speak about about against FGM launching a petition calling for a ban in India. Arif, Arifan A. Engineer, Vice President of the Central Board of Dawoodi Bara Community, told The Guardian in March 2018, Kafas isn't mentioned in any religious text, particularly in the Quran, but some devotees blindly follow the Sunni, while others are too scared to disobey because they fear they will be ostracized. And let's really look at that. That's a double whammy right there. That is taking off a woman's clitoris so she can't enjoy sex but conservatives are sexist i just want you to remember that we're talking about kavanaugh supposedly fooling around with a girl at 17 he's a fucking rapist but twitter thinks it's okay to cut off a clitoris 
That's how fucking twisted the liberal mind is. Seriously. So once again, I know it's a long segment, but I could not not play this. There's no way I can't play this. This is them talking. It sums up, I'm a conservative independent. I'm not a Republican, but I know Google. I've talked about it for fucking my whole life. How it takes an act of Congress for them not to push me WAPO articles, New York Times article, CNN article, MSDNC articles, Trump's the devil. It took me a month to figure out how to get it off my goddamn phone. Not because I'm a mega guy. I was just sick of seeing it. I didn't ask for it. I don't know how many times I go into Twitter and have to block people. I don't even know. I get retweets of liberal icons from people I don't follow, and it's on my feed. I have been shadow banned on Twitter for dogging seltzer. I didn't curse. I didn't call him a little fembot. I didn't say shit. I just said, you're lying. The screen came up. They fucked up. I saw it. And then they took it away. There is a concerted effort. If the Tucker Carlson story doesn't get you to understand that they were trying to skew the election for Obama and for Hillary, all I have to tell you is one of the major fucking players in Google was part of Hillary's campaign. That's all I have to say. If that in itself doesn't wake you up to make you realize Google Twitter, Facebook, MSN. Take your blinders off, just look, and you'll see they are the resistance. They are part of the plan to get rid of Trump. They're part of the plan to push nothing but liberal ideologies. And it's dangerous to our fucking country. I don't care what you say. Nobody should have that much power. Last year, I did a whole segment on this where they showed how Google search algorithms tilted campaigns. They know they can do it, and you just heard them say it. They have the ability to brainwash people just like our mainstream media. So, Going to do another ambiance, a little beach time, and go into news, social media nuggets.
man. This is this is our generation, man. All you people, we're all together, man. It's groovy. And dig yourselves, because it's really groovy. Now it's time for news and social media nuggets. The crazy stuff that makes your host lose his mind. It's a whole new ball game on campus these days, and they call it PC. PC? Politically correct. And it's not just politics, it's everything. It's what you eat, it's what you wear, and it's what you say. If you don't watch yourself, you can get in a buttload of trouble. For instance, see these girls? Yeah. No, you don't. Those are women. You call them girls and they'll pop your figs. Save the whales! Yeah, he's in the military now! Please don't sit back down! You know, sound as we can overdig this. Off we go into the wild blue yonder, climbing high into the sun. and be all you can be for it's an adventure for the few the proud the brave in military corner military corner not a good article but i wanted to cover it anyway happy 17th birthday to the forever war hmm it's the 17th birthday of the post-9-11 authorization for use of military force with gay President George W. Bush and every president since a blank check to deploy U.S. military personnel everywhere in the world. Passed on September 14, 2001 and signed into law on September 18th, the AUMF authorized presidents to use all necessary appropriate force against the nations, organizations, or personnel he determined, planned, authorized, committed, or aided in the September 11th attack. Only one president, only one, con- only one member of Congress voted against it. It was California Democrat Barbara Lee. Um, this was done to the anti-war by a guy who was in the military and is a libtard now because he writes for fucking Task and Purpose, which is a bunch of goddamn liberals. But sadly, it is sad where they're 17 years. I. The only part of our, our, if I ever thought we should change something, it should be during war the president doesn't change out. I know we've done it through World War II and all that stuff, but it, I think that has so much to do with it. We went to conservative for eight years, then we went straight into fucking liberal policies, let's get out and turn it into Quagmire, fuck, fuck, media didn't care, Democrats weren't talking about Quagmire like they were when Bush was in charge, but it turned into Quagmire because we didn't have a policy. We just were going to get out. So, I, I don't know. The youngest and oldest living Medal of Honor recipients met 
and the epic photo is a result. The Medal of Honor convention is currently taking place in Annapolis, Maryland, and it brought together the youngest and oldest living Marine recipients of the nation's highest award for battle heroism on a photograph of epic proportions. In a post on Twitter on Thursday, retired Marine Corporal Kyle Carpenter, 28, said he was beyond humbled and honored upon meeting with retired Marine Chief Warrant Officer 4, Herschel Woody Williams, 94, at the conference. As the youngest living recipient, I can only hope to one day live up to his legacy. Born on October 2, 1923, Williams is awarded the MOH for his action during World War II in the Battle of Iwo Jima. On February 23, 1945, then-Corporal Williams, a demolition sergeant, repeatedly charged alone towards concrete pillboxes where the Japanese were firing machine guns in order to wipe out one of the positions after another with explosive charges and a flamethrower. On one occasion, he daringly mounted a pillbox to insert the nozzle of a flamethrower through the air vent, killing the occupants and silencing the gun. On another, he grimly charged enemy riflemen who attempted to stop him with a bayonet and he destroyed them with a burst of flame from his weapon. The citation reads, Carpenter was born in 89, was awarded the Medal of Honor for his heroism during the Battle of Mirajah on November 21st, 2010, in which he threw himself on an enemy grenade that landed on a rooftop security post, saving the life of his fellow Marine. Carpenter moved toward the grenade in an attempt to shield his fellow Marines from the deadly blast. This citation reads, When the grenade detonated, his body absorbed the brunt of the blast, severely wounding him, but saving the life of his fellow Marines. And he was like one of the last to get it. They, they stopped giving them out for people jumping on grenades. So, pretty cool photo. All of them, they're next level badasses. One of the first female Marine grunts faces separations because she married a corporal. I just want to throw it out there. That's all I said about this. I know that there are women that can be grunts. They can be rangers. They can be whatever the fuck they want. But you put men and women together, they're going to fuck. It's just going to happen. It's called biology. Penises and vaginas are different. Even you non-gender binary fucking Fruit Loops, you have sex too. And as we learned a couple podcasts ago, it seems like you have heterosexual sex a lot because a lot of gay people are turning in to be pregnant. Mm -hmm. Army eyeing strategic cannon tech with a thousand mile range. It's fucking crazy. And then our last article, for some soldiers, new tougher army fitness test, a jarring wake-up call. 101st is testing this out. going to read a little bit of this article because it's kicking some ass. Master Sergeant Ross Strom thought he was ready when he took a version of the Army new physical fitness test. The 49-year-old maintenance non-commissioned officer was used to doing a combination of running and CrossFit six times a week. I was like, I'll be able to do this, no problem, Strom told Military Com, recalling when he volunteered to participate in last year's pilot for the Army Combat Readiness Test. The near-identical precursor to the new Army Combat Fitness Test, or ACFT. But as he worked his way through each of the events, the deadlift, the power throw, the sprint drag carry, the push-up of the leg truck, tuck, Strom felt the exertion build in his muscles like never before. Doing all those events and then running two miles, that's tough, he said. And then he finished a minute and 40 seconds slower than his normal time on the current Army PFT. He just re-enlisted for six years on an active guard reserve status at Fort Lee, Virginia, and now worries that his age will work against him on the ACFT, which will have no age-specific storing standards. Oh, my God! 
that's fucking horrible. The Army July Army July 9th announcement that the new six event AFCT will become mandatory test of record in 2020 was a jarring wake up call for more than a million soldiers accustomed to the comfortable norm of four decade old push up sit up run. After the next two years, the Army has pledged to refine the new fitness standards, prepare active duty National Guard and Reserve units to administer the new test, and and figure out what to do with soldiers who failed to meet the new standard. Sorry, I had a smoothie this morning. I'm back on my diet and it's kicking my butt. The purpose of the ACFT, first and foremost, is to make sure our soldiers are ready for the rigors of combat. We do not have, we do do have to sort through all the policies that come to physical fitness test. I will tell you though, at the end of the day, if you can't pass the ACFT, then there's probably not a spot for you in the in the army. Later on in the article, it does say they're going to give them 12 months in the first year. So if you fail it, um. You have a year to fix it because it is a drastic change. Um, and I got to tell you, it sounds like rip or pre-ranger course. You basically get smoked and then you got to run. And that's not easy. Even my young legs said that sucked. Let's go to our college crazy. The bee explains common racist hand signals. Oh, this is some funny shit. And there's one thing that you notice about white nationalists is that they have hands. And something they've been doing a lot with their hands lately is sending out secret messages in support of white supremacy. If you can see anyone doing any of these hand gestures, you can be certain they are racist and should report should report them to the nearest racism reporting facility. Usually Twitter. Racism is okay is the first symbol. The racist hand symbol is very popular right now. It's to say, okay, as in racism is okay, and of course it's the okay one. Then there's uh, three fingers down, thumb across, one finger up. One race to rule them all. This sign signals to other people that you believe one race is superior to all others. Just say no to the one symbol, which means every time somebody scores a football, a touchdown, a football, even the black players, they are racist. Two. V is for violent bigotry, and that's a peace symbol. It's very similar to one symbol, but doubly racist because it's two fingers instead of one. <laughs> the palm of Hitler. This sign is formed by having all five fingers extended, five being approximately the number of letters in Hitler, used extensively in World War II, and the Trump administration. The rock, just a palm. He was making a fist. The rock of white supremacy. This racist symbol represents rock, which is used to crush scissors, scissors being two blades working together, and thus a symbol of multiple races living in harmony. It is better to lose every game of rock, paper, scissors you ever played than to choose the rock. (laughs) The uh, hang loose symbol, the evil eye of prejudice. In this classic racist sign pro- propagated by notorious bigot and Satanist Ronnie James Dio, the index and pinky finger are extended and keep separate to symbolize how races should be segregated. The wiggly fingers of Chulu, and I can't even describe it, wiggle your fingers rapidly back and forth, commonly used by servants of Chalulu to signal the hatred for all races as they summon the great sleeper to devour people of color. The handshake of hate is a simple handshake. This may seem innocuous at first, but it implies racism by suggesting that that they own your hand. Slavery anyone? Slavery anyone? If someone tries this one on you, punch them in the face. Be careful not to make the fist shape above. 
And lastly, the cool guy finger gun. This is one hand gesture you can be sure is not meant to symbolize white supremacy. It's only used by cool people. Anybody doing double finger gun is desperately too cool to be a racist. Or definitely too cool to be a racist. They might, however, be an NRA member and thus a domestic terrorist. Oh well, at least they're not racist. What's your favorite racist hand signal? Foreman now! I think that's fucking hilarious because this shit has gotten out of control. But not as out of control as this shit. Terrible segue. Ad agency darkens skin of students in high school photo to promote diversity. This is white guilt gone mad. Plan to establish a branch in the U.S. The Emil Cole School posted an image of smiling freshman students to Twitter. However, the students themselves drew attention to the fact that darker skin had been photoshopped onto some of their faces. In a few cases, making them look completely different. But goddamn, you don't want to suffer the Twitter outrage because you had a bunch of white people in the photo. Unless you work at, like, Hillary's campaign. Uh, a lot of these liberal places, we put them up here. They're just a bunch of fucking whiteies. Yeah. University announces white awake safe space for white students. The new group is now one of four in the University Diversity Issue Program. The announcement is met with a wide range of criticism on student social media, and it was taken away. So there's no safe spaces for white people, unless you're gay, unless you're trans. Then you can. Or you're a feminist. They got their own spaces. Hmm. Interesting. College Dam host T.A. compared whites to autistic kids. Isn't that nice? The University of Georgia's Young Democrats chapter hosted a TA who compared whites to psychopaths, and he also compared President Donald Trump to a chemo that kills the cancer and usually the host. Students with whom campus reform spoke to did not approve the TA's mark. There was a way in which white people in the South learn manners at a series of behaviors the way autistic kids learn to read social cues for behavior. Arami Osei Frimpong, if you got I for name, you're a douchebag, who was invited to a meeting to discuss civil liberties said on Twitter on August 13th, except since these guys and gals aren't autistic, I just feel like I'm around a bunch of psychopaths. There's a way in which white... Oh, I'm sorry, it just repeats itself. O.C. Frimfrog, who's student Frimfrog. That's his actual name. F-R-I-M... Oh, Frimpong. Sorry. Fuck it, Frimfrog. We'll call him Frimfrog. He's a racist. Whose student profile, in case that his research includes educational, educational philosophy, has aimed his attacks at the process by which American school systems choose to teach civic courses. The TA said that civic classrooms designed to make students comfortable would be white supremacist and that he teaches students who receive white family wealth and think they earned it by working at Chick-fil-A. I've acquired student debt just like a lot of students on this campus, UGA business management professor Parker Meyerlow told Campus Forum. Where is this white wealth when I need it? I'm highly, it's highly unprofessional for any instructor to direct these kind of comments at students who are required to take his or her class. Yeah. Hmm. Later on, he claimed that you don't find white nationalists at a rally. You find them at suburban chamber commerce meeting. Everyone should be welcome to express themselves on this campus. Sarah L., a sociology junior. Our university is home to so many cultures and backgrounds. We don't single out one group or direct hateful stereotypes at them because of the color of their skin, especially an instructor. This is racist. Yes, it is. Very racist. And you see 
it doesn't work that well at a southern school like Georgia because, let's be honest, in the South, your virtue signaling gets you nothing. Syracuse University opens 5 million social justice center. Woo! Syracuse will use an alumni donation to open a social justice center to foster proactive innovation and interdisciplinary approaches to issues related to justice, equity, and inclusion. None of the speakers for the center's launch have a background in conservative thought or activism. Would be surprised. Although the center's stated objective is to go beyond partisanship, the lineup of speakers at the building's opening ceremony favors the far left. Huh. I don't care. They whipped FSU. Willie Taggart is 0-2. I'm happy as motherfucking shit. I'm so fucking happy. It was 0-3. He sucks. Florida State sucks. You get karma, motherfucker. You get karma. And I called Willie Taggart a fucking motherfucker. He used the Ducks for a year to get another job. I fucking hate him. He took some of our best goddamn fucking recruits. I hate that motherfucker. Ah! But my favorite. And you knew it was coming. This one sums up the crazy social justice warrior. This one is like the 10th power black belt social justice warrior. Student council members, ice cream is not inclusive enough. Let me read it again. Ice cream is not inclusive enough. Student council members of the University of Wisconsin-Madison are asking that school to change the ingredients in its official ice cream to be more inclusive. The students say that the minority students of certain religious backgrounds cannot enjoy the ice cream, which contains beef gelatin, without violating their religious beliefs. Oh. My. God. U at WAM, official ice cream, the Babcock, contained a beef gelatin additive, which according to the legislation, renders certain communities such as Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, and vegetarians unable to enjoy it without violating their beliefs. The legislation titled Ice Cream for All <laughs> people, is already has eight sponsors, including the chair, vice chair, and secretary of associate students of Madison Student Council. The ASM Student Council is comparable to the student government. The Ice Cream for All legislation will be voted on next Wednesday. The ASM Student Council cannot can only recommend changes to the university administration. Nothing that the ASM Student Council passes is a fact of definitive change. The legislature stated that Babcock ice cream, it would be a gross act of discrimination to continue to deprive some minority students from eating the ice cream because of their religious beliefs. Sponsors of the legislation also added that issues like this play a part in the marginalization of students. Symbolic issues like this have always and will always play a critical role in whether marginalized students and people feel welcome, included, and connected to their community. However, according to the Badger and Herald, Scott Rankin, chair of the Food Science Department, said the University Ice Cream Shop, Babcock Dairy, offers an assortment of other ice creams that are gelatin-free and added that it would be hard to replicate the taste of the gelatin-based ice cream. Yo, Jeff Ben Yashaka. If you got a hyphen name, you're a douchebag. Co-sponsor of the resolution, as well as ASM Vice Chair, responded to Reagan's claim stating that Babcock ice cream cannot taste that much different without the gelatin additive. It passed by the student council next week. It would serve as an acknowledgement by the ASM that the university marginalized students by having the official campus ice cream not be inclusive to religious students on campus. Oh, what the fuck. And, and 
And this is just another one of those fucking examples that they literally dug into the fucking ingredients to find out it was in there. The ending of the article, University of WM spokesman told Campus Reform on Thursday that the school already produced and sells supreme, super premium ice cream, sherbet, and Greek frozen yogurt options that are made with planet, plant-based stabilizers and are gelatin-free, adding that there is also lactose-free ice cream for people who are lactose intolerant and non-white ice cream for people who think ice cream is racist. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's great. Probably a vanilla with black food coloring. Yeah. You gotta gotta break that down. Fuck me. Other crazy. Cancel liberal designated survivor. Ended up over on Netflix because they hate Trump and they made it an anti-Trump thing. So there you go. New York teacher performs oral sex on 14-year-old. Her sentence is outrageous. A high school teacher in Bronx who admitted performing a blowjob on a 14-year-old student was also sentenced to 10 years probation. Allowed to keep her teaching certificate, the teacher reportedly performed the act multiple times. Dory Meyer, 30, who was arrested in January 2018, pleaded guilty to criminal sex act for performing oral sex on the student in November 2017 at the New School for Leadership and Arts in Kingsbridge, where she taught social studies. Huh. Well, a blowjob is social. It's pretty social. Very social. It's liberals. You can't be pedophiles. I know you defend them. I know you love them. But you no, you can't. SJWs lose their mind after discovering new Spider-Man game has a hero teaming up with the oppressive NYPD. I'm not reading the article but this just goes back to the left. Everything that makes sense, we go against it. We hate cops. We hate you. We hate God. We hate everything. And we're going to freak out about a fictional fucking video game that has cops in it. Okay. Somehow that totally makes sense to me. And a big one. Oh, this one just made me fucking go, yay, when I found it. Because it just, oh, God. I call them the Mafia. And they show they are the mafia. LGBTQ activist group send bigots to Soviet-style gulags. Compassionate, non-violent course of action. The penal system was a rehabilitary one. In another episode of Gulag Apologetics, an LGBTQ activist group at Goldsmith University in London has said that Soviet-style camps were compassionate, non-violent course of action for bigots who oppressed their agenda. According to the Telegraph, the LGBT group had a bizarre Twitter exchange with a special education needs teacher named Claire Graham, who had objected to the group's denunciation of feminist academics that view transgender women as not being factual, actually women. Oh, gee, well, that's just crazy because they're not, which therefore makes them undeserving of female privileges, not to mention shared bed- bathrooms. Such feminists are often referred to as TERFs by activists, trans-exclusionary racial feminists. We've talked about that on the show. The ideas of TERFs and anti-trans bigots literally kill and must be eradicated through re-education, said LGBT Goldsmith on Twitter. Graham responded, I said that I thought their choice of language in talking about lists and purging people was intended to shut down debate about trans people in the law. I then received unpleasant and dehumanizing threats about being sent to a gulag. I feel bad for other trans people because this kind of response by some makes them seem so extreme and intolerant. And they are extreme and intolerant. 
It was here that the LGBTQ activist group then explained that a Soviet-style gulags were a compassionate measure that would politely make the subject a better person. Non-violent, of course. The penal system was a rehabilitatory one. The aim was to correct and change the ways of criminals, said the group. Much like wider Soviet society, everyone who was able to work did so at a wage proportionate to those who weren't incapacitated. As they gained skills, were able to move up the ranks and work under less supervision. Educational work was also a prominent feature of the Soviet penal system. There were regular classes, book clubs, newspaper editorial teams, sports theaters, and performance. That just sounds like a, a, a carnival cruise right there. The gulag. The group even went so far as to say that such gulags were slandered by the CAA as part of a vast conspiracy. Somehow the vast number of mainstream historians who have denounced Stalin's gulag system as one of the most oppressive prison systems ever constructed were all in on the conspiracy. To repeat Obama's words, we don't have time for meeting of the Flat Earth Society. Yeah, that pretty much sums up these people. So, yeah. The story ends with an estimated 1,053,829 people died between 1934 and 1953 in the gulags. But to the far left LGBT mafia, you and I, who are not down with the trans thing and don't believe we should be gay and that only gay marriage is the only marriage, we belong there. We need to die. Okay. But they get what they want, folks. This crowd has pressured so many people that I found this. And it trumps that. I know it's hard to believe. And I know I just said Trump, which triggered a lot of people to fucking break out in cold sweats. Just lose it. Oh, Trump! Pampers ditching Sesame Street-themed diapers amid gender, amid gender concerns. That's right. Muppets somehow aren't inclusive enough. Hmm. The New York Post reports that Pampers, one of the nation's top-selling diaper brands, is dropping Cookie Monster and Elmo from its diapers amid its initiative to better embrace gender inclusivity. The change, which wasn't made public, comes as part of the brand's gender equality work. Through the Post says it's not apparent any parent complained about Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch were inappropriate to handle their baby's waste products simply because they appeal pure male. When the Post reached out to Pampers' parent company, Proper and Gamble, representatives of the company were cagey, but shoppers were questioned questioned the loss of Sesame Street characters off diapers received clearer answers. Service reps at P&G partly blamed the stealthy switch on gender issues. <clears throat> the Pampers reps said parents who have daughters thought that the Sesame Street characters are too masculine. One customer told the Post, a Sesame Street spokesman seemed to substantiate the claim when she answered the paper's request for comment with a clip from Pampers' website detailing the brand's gender equality work. The new Pampers diapers have more generic designs on them. Paper, airplanes, and cameras were mentioned in the Post story. In line, the company says, with the demands of millennial parents who seem drawn to brands like Jessica Alba's high-end Honest Company, which feature gender-neutral gender design on their diapers. Oh. My. God. Here's the reality. When I was rearing kids as a buck sergeant in the United States Army, we didn't care what was on the diaper. We only cared about the price. If it was Jim's diapers, we bought that shit. And the best part about this, after the changeover, 
The new diapers are leaking like crazy and people are complaining about the product now. Not about what's on it. They bended for a minuscule little amount of fucking weirdos and their gender shit and destroyed their product. Good on you for that. That's a business model I'm not going to follow. Then while I was on vacation, this is the second thing I remember. And Stephen A. Smith, the race hustler extraordinaire on ESPN, he thought this was bullshit, but not the New York Times. After emotional outburst, New York Times rules for tennis star Serena Williams, victim of empire sexism. Yeah. Let's just break that down, folks. She went fucking Cujo on a judge, cursed him out, broke her fucking racket, and she got penalized for it, just like a male would. But she said males get away with it. Everybody bought it. She got her ass kicked and got disqualified. And it was sexism. So the paper record comes trotting in. Da, 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 social justice warrior. And they said it was. And it wasn't. I don't care about tennis. When it's on my TV, I get very angry. Because who the fuck can watch that shit? It's like soccer. This is shit moving. Nobody scores. What the fuck? But yeah, that was weak. Do some crazy cop shit. Not cop shit, but criminal shit. I should have said it the right way, so let's do it again. To some crazy criminal shit, Kentucky woman defecated on deputy to resist arrest. <laughs> Police in Livingston, Kentucky said a woman intentionally shit her pants on the officer to avoid being arrested. Amanda Peters, 26, was arrested around 2 a.m. on Saturday at her home. Online records showed she had been wanted on an outstanding warrant in neighboring Rock Castle County. When the homeowner let officers in, Peters reportedly locked herself in the bathroom. A responding deputy forced himself in the bathroom and arrested the woman with force. That's when the police alleged Peters intentionally released her bowels in an upward motion and with purposeful direction at the deputy, causing said bodily waste to land on face, arms, and legs. Online records show Peters was charged with resisting arrest, third-degree assault on the officer, identity theft, Another without consent, giving an officer false identity information and theft by unlawful taking or disposition of 10000 or more. Sweet Jesus. And cops are the bad guys. Okay. Then there's this wizard, and it's sad. Woman killed by friends while fleeing, fleeing Walmart shoplifting spree. 38-year-old Shermaine Mayo is the woman authorities said ran over and killed her own friend while trying to flee from a shoplifting spree. For me, it's really sad to see someone could just dehumanize someone like this and leave the scene, said Captain Joan Zoroko, Elkton Police Department. Police said Mayo and her two accomplices, Denisha Harris and Kanisha Cunningham, tried leaving the Walmart off Pulaski Highway without paying for over $1,000 worth of merchandise. The security officer followed the trio and tried stanging photos of the car in an attempt to conceal the tag. The victim, Kanisha Cunningham, jumped on the truck of the vehicle and tried to use her body to cover the tag, said Captain Zerullo. Police said Mayo was behind the wheel and reversed, hitting a curb, leaving Cunningham trapped under the car before reversing and hitting another curb. It's crazy. I mean, a total disregard of life, in my opinion. They didn't even attempt to at least render aid said Captain Zerullo. Cunningham was pronounced dead on the scene while the other two suspects fled on foot and were quickly apprehended. Shoppers are now trying to fathom this crazy story. Not even like like try to help her. They just ran. It blows my mind, said Brittany Savage. Somebody ran up to the reporter because they just wanted to get on TV. Totally outrageous. Harris was charged with theft and released on her own 
recognizant. The other one is charged with vehicular murder. A scary one. Cancer spreads from organ donor to four people in an extraordinary case. It was a organ donation. There was cancer and they didn't catch it. And now four people have cancer. That freaked me out. And our last thing before we go into a lighter fare... Netflix strikes again, and we're not even in the Obamas yet. The Obama shit hasn't showed up, but I know it's going to get crazier. Gloria Steinem calls abortion the basis of democracy and new Netflix film. Oh, really? The framers were sitting there, and they went, you know what? We're going to kill babies. We're going to start a new country that just kills babies. Yay! Freedom! Democracy depends on the ability to end other lives before they're even born, according to one famed feminist. Netflix released a trailer for its new documentary, Reversing Roe, on September 4th. The timely teaser for the abortion law film comes during Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing. The film hits computer screen September 13th and appears to be included interviews with abortion activists, including Gloria Steinem. The trailer gave a sneak peek of her comments. It's the basis of democracy that you control your own body, she said in a film worried about Roe v. Wade, the 1973 Supreme Court case that legalized abortion in the U.S. This comes as many in the media panic that Kavanaugh could enable the court to overturn Roe. She's right. The ability to control one's own body is important, but abortion is about controlling someone else's body and ending his or her future. Steinem has made similar comments in the past. Earlier this year, declared that no abortion means no democracy for women. In 2017, she stressed to the weak that to be right To be right to life for a fetus is to be dangerous for women's lives. Two years earlier, Steinem even blamed Pope Francis for causing global warming by forcing women to have fucking children. To Cosmo. Wow. And the new PPF Prez will take us out to our lighter fare. Yeah. She says we're totally transparent about abortion. But we cloak 776,000 chemical abortions a year as emergency contraceptive kits. And we say the 340,000 abortions we do is only 3% of what we do. But it's our moneymaker. So we gotta kill some more babies. But I also know that Planned Parenthood provides more abortions, uh, the most abortions, than any other health care provider in the United States. And in fact, in I think 2016, Planned Parenthood provided 328,348 abortions. And in terms of emergency contraception kits, 730,329. That's more than well women exams, pap tests, HPV vaccinations. Planned Parenthood doesn't perform mammograms. But Planned Parenthood, I don't think, is transparent about that. Planned Parenthood says it's only 3% of their services. The Washington Post has found that to not be accurate, has found it to be more like 12%, has given Planned Parenthood three Pinocchios for that. Why isn't Planned Parenthood more transparent about its true position? 
Well, I disagree with this. Planned Parenthood, just like every major medical organization that I've ever worked for, follows the law and is transparent and makes clear what are the procedures that we perform and what are the services that we perform. Planned Parenthood is the largest provider of reproductive health care in this country. That includes abortions, but over 90% of the services performed are preventive care services. I mean, I'm... But see, you're separating it. It provides more abortions but no tax but they are legal. any other sorry, and it is legal, legal. It okay is legal. i just so want to point that out about that it seems to me that planned parenthood is trying to have it both ways well i don't get what you're saying yeah Sonny. me either how well, are they getting having it both ways well because there's there has been this issue about federal funding right they which i get, want to clarify please right do. yeah there please is do. there are no federal taxpayer dollars that go towards abortion to our lighter fare, we haven't played Yusha Thomas in a really long time, and he had a new one out last week. It was called The Three Types of Vets. Enjoy. Sick of these fake motherfuckers. Stolen dollar. Wearing these fake uniforms. I got something for you. I'm going to post it on Facebook as well. Hey, bro. Hey, bro. I mean, why are you wearing this uniform? You didn't even serve, bro. I didn't say, why are you in my face, dickhead? You're not supposed to call me a dickhead. I'm a veteran of the United States Army, okay? You can't do that to me. You can't do that. Take I'm off the uniform. Take it off. I'm gonna steal the shit out of you. You ain't gonna do anything. Pussy. Ah! 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 You gotta kill me. Our commanders know what they work. Smitty, what it is, Jack? Ha <laughs> ha. Good to see, you, brother. Ah uh-uh. ah. Damn, brother. I thought you was dead. I could have sworn I saw a telegram go to your house last week. Yeah, whatever, motherfucker. My main man, motherfucking Smitty. Scott Ed. What's going on, baby? Be home, baby. Hey, listen, man. I got them three for fives, though. Three for fives, baby. Sure, it's good to be home on this motherfucker. The fuck is this in? She. I ain't never give a fuck about that type. Going the white man's army, huh? You think you privileged like them? You know they're gonna fuck you up for drinking out that water, huh? Oh, fuck no! What you got on your feet, dickhead? Those boots off and shit. They're like Muhammad Ali old boxing gloves. He went 12 rounds reforming with them. You been out here cooning since you been back home. Where you from? Cooney Island? No, no. Well, well, well. You from Cancun. It ain't brother I can. You a coon? You despicable. Fighting the white man's army. You just think they just, since you coon a little bit, you better than us? No, you still got sit in the back of the bus. And you got your pants tucked in your boots. What you think, you guile from Street Fighter? Damn, pants so tight, you can't change in your pocket. One quarter, two quarter. Oh, you got 67 cents. Then let me get a quarter. Yo, don't touch me. I, touch me again, I'll smack the shit out you. You got it. You got it, brother. Enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, you better leave. Job, turkey. Can't stand it. Yo, this fat piece of shit. He built like a bag of dirty clothes. I know his girl cheating on him. Type 2 diabetes having motherfucker. It's about to get hot. Well, B, is that Yusha? The Yusha Thomas? Holy crap! 
Hey, what's up, brother? Fucking fantastic since I've seen you here, bro. Listen, I watch all your videos. They're hey, awesome. I appreciate that, man. Seriously. Bro, you not to be lot. weird or anything, but do you mind if I get a picture oh, or something? Come on, bro. Absolutely. You know what's up. But first, I got to tell you something. Sure, anything there, bub. I wear Nikes. You liberal, leftist, communist, son of a bitch. You were funny until you mentioned politics. I hope you burn in hell, you black jungle juice drinking jigaboo. Yeah, hello, 911. Please send a unit over here quick. I got a black guy in my neighborhood that's walking around with a loaded pistol. Yeah, he's pointing and aiming at me right now. Yeah, he's trying to kill me. Yeah, you need to send a unit over here right now. Help! Help! Some funny shit there. So that wraps up another episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. Please feel free to share this with your family and friends and send emails with comments or suggestions for segments to F-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. FOP podcast gmail.com you get this show on soundcloud podcast addict tune in radio google play itunes blueberry and stitcher remember to check out the flyover politic webpage at f-o-p-p-o-d-c-a-s-t.com fop podcast.com it's a theme to see links to feeds for the show links to our facebook page and email us there you see a link to every episode on the episode release page and i just love saying over and over nothing on the blog page because i suck Next podcast will be 21 September, year of our Lord, 2018. We're going to do the last tea party finally. And it won't have a 37-minute long sound bite. Enjoy the rest of your week. Stay cool out there if you're in the south. It's hot as balls out here. Prayers go out to all those still affected by the hurricane because it's been a shitload of rain out there. Make sure you disconnect from all your devices don't give the yeah yeahs to people and as always i thank every one of you for listening and take care thanks for listening to this episode of flyover politic podcast remember to check out our website at f-o-p-p-o-d-c-a-s-t.com and remember it's a short ride make every day count Cause I feel